My fellow Westorians, I'm Aziz. With me is Ashea, and this is Valar Reredus. As we take on a feast for crows, Valar Reredus seeks to entertain while preparing you for the oncoming winds of winter. Many of the new plot lines and locations launched in this book are not yet resolved, taking us to our greatest heights of mystery yet. There's so much to think about and theorize. So for the remainder of Valar Reredus, we're going to be looking ahead as much, if not more, as we've been looking back. But the core message remains true. The best books are those that hold up to repeated rereading. From George R. R. Martin himself. If you're watching live, you can feel free to ask live questions. You can also send questions and comments ahead of time by joining us on one of our social media outlets like Facebook, Flick, Discord, or Slack. This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Check out the Isle of Faces podcast, the Scraps and Scrolls edition. In particular, is Joe Buckley's show. He's in tandem with us. When we do chapters, he does the same chapters, but the takes are very different. Same goes for Nina on Tumblr. That's Good Queen Alley. You can find her thoughts there or throughout Valar Reredus. Check it out. Also, thanks to y'all who support us on Patreon. We have just released all the A Storm of Swords episodes. Some of you got spammed last night because we can't turn off notifications on Patreon. <laughs> so about 17, 16 episodes went up last night. It's all the Valar Reredus from A Storm of Swords, but in a different order, POV by POV instead of the regular order. So in other words, you could listen to John 1, then John 2, then John 3, then John 4 all in a row, and then do the same with Arya or what have you. And of course, that also removes the intros and the outros. So it's a little more, it's a little tighter, I guess you could say, a little more focused. And well, that also comes with no network ads and things like that. So joining us on Patreon comes with a lot of benefits. You can sign up for as little as a couple bucks a month and, or, you know, more if that's what floats your boat and you get things like access to scripts. Sometimes we have, when we do our scripted episodes, you get those early. And of course, we do shout outs from time to time in those episodes. Today, we have, as usual, a great set of chapters, starting with Elaine 1, Enemies at the Gates, that's Gates of the Moon, a.k.a. Who Invited Lady Forlorn? Cersei 5, The Iron Bank Will Not Have Its Due, a.k.a. The One Where Ares Rejects Cersei. Brienne 5, The Gang Meets Septon Maribald, a.k.a. The One With the Broken Men Speech. And finally, Samwell 3, Cross an Ocean to Drown in a Canal, a.k.a. Fire and Blood and Fever. 
I wouldn't call it a theme, but there's been more and more Valyrian steel popping up recently and in these chapters. Randall Tarley doesn't use Heartsbane, but he talks about Valyrian steel, and of course, that's their family's copy. Oathkeeper, of course, with Brienne, we just saw in use for the first time, and of course, she's carrying it around. We saw Nightfall and Red Rain out on the Iron Islands, and today we get a visit by Lady Forlorn. Maybe a bigger theme or a theme in general would be breaking unwritten rules. That's a major thing going on today. Littlefinger conspires with Lynn Corbray to break the rules of decorum while relying on unwritten rules about not inquiring too deeply into bastard children's origins, a.k.a. Elaine. Cersei seems intent on testing out the Iron Bank will have its due to see if it's really true. Sir Balman Birch is going to die because Bronn breaks the unwritten rules of personal combat again. And Cersei sets that up this chapter. Kyburn gets new victims thanks to some puppeteers going too far in their depictions of lions and dragons. She has memories of Tywin being rejected by Ares for trying to marry above his station. That's perhaps an example of unwritten rules being changed on the fly because mm, Tywin thought that would work. There's the problem with them being unwritten, right? <laughs> they can't be, uh, you can't point to them and say, hey, you went, you broke that rule. Meanwhile, Tywin's knights may have lost to Rhaegar on purpose at the tournament, breaking the unwritten rule of asking your warriors to lose on purpose. Brienne is a walking example of breaking unwritten rules in Westeros, gender roles, etc., and a lot of, a lot of associated topics. Randall Tarley bends and breaks rules unwritten or no left and right, you might say, especially with regards to his son, inheritance and all that, but... Denying Brienne hospitality here in this chapter is a very straightforward example that it doesn't happen very often, but we can be pretty sure we know why. Darian gets in on the act, breaking both written and unwritten rules about how the Night's Watch are supposed to behave out in the world. Even though brothers routinely break the rules surrounding sex, this is a step even further off the path that he takes. We also have a lot of powerful people stifled. Tywin, of course, stifled by Ares. Cersei herself stifled by Maggie, and then she stifles the Iron Bank. Randall Tarley stifled by Brienne, and a little bit by Sir Hyle, and by his own plans. The Lord's Declarant, of course, undone by Littlefinger's planning. Perhaps a theme for the entire book, but particularly strong right now, we have powerful memories driving a lot of characters to their goals, or at least driving their actions. Maester Eamon's brothers come up a lot in his dreams and memories as he's getting close to passing on. Dreams of dragons, of course, are a huge part of that chapter as well. Sam's memories of his father are with him pretty much always. What he's seen beyond the wall, ditto with Gilly. Brienne's memories of roses and training. But in this one, it's Maribald's long experience with common folk that steals the scene. His memories, recounted to us, are some of the most powerful writing in the entire series. Of course, Cersei is constantly thinking of Maggie the Frog and the Valonqar memories, but today we actually see the day it occurred and what followed, plus her reflecting on her long love of Rhaegar, something that lasted for years, and her expectation to marry him also, which lasted for years. Then Tywin proposing Cersei for the prince, only to be rejected. But we start with a character that has no memories at all, because she's just been born, so to speak. Reborn, that is. Not a new character, but a new name for Sansa. Of course, I mean Elaine. Elaine won. Enemies at the gates, a.k.a. who invited Lady Forlorn. Well, Littlefinger did, actually. The 
he makes it look like the Lord's Declarant did, though. <laughs> we get a behind-the-scenes look at Littlefinger in action. He's not a guy to root for, exactly, but it's fun to see nonetheless because this is just so well done, so clever. It's a great insight into power dynamics and how tradition and decorum can be used as a weapon against those who uphold it. The last chapter saw Arya become Cat of the Canals right at the end, and here we have the debut of Elaine. Catelyn is dead. Long live Cat Elaine. And it starts like this. As the rising sun came streaming through the windows, Elaine sat up in bed and stretched. Sansa's literally referring to herself as Elaine internally. The immersion is full on. The curtain has been pulled. Arya has been a bunch of different names, but rarely does she refer to herself internally as those names. Certainly when she says it out loud, she uses her pseudonym. As said last week, she was always Arya underneath though. And as we talked about, it seems like even looking forward, that maintains. Now, we're not on, you know, Theon Reek levels here in terms of how Sansa is play, deeply playing this role, but she's in. She's, as Joe Buckley puts it, she's being a method actor here for sure. Recall from previous examples and previous episodes that Sansa had to separate the personalities of Peter Baelish and Littlefinger. She's thinking them as almost two distinct people. It helps her make sense of what's going on around her. She thinks of Littlefinger twice early on in a moment in this chapter with his eyes looking at her with hunger. She knows that look, she's seen it, and she'd rather it not happen or give name to it. It's really quite sickening. The worst part is that he seems to be getting more aggressive with it. He's, he makes that comment about, well, you know, that kiss sure was dutiful as if maybe he's going to be taking more later. It's pretty gross. Well, I don't need the qualifier pretty. It's just really gross. So, but even though he's so terrible, there is at least the silver lining where he's not around a lot. He's very busy. Whereas Joffrey, as an underage king, didn't have very many responsibilities and, of course, he had the Kingsguard following him around all the time, making things more intimidating and violent. Sansa had little to do, but Elaine has real responsibilities with Robert Aaron and household management and all that. Things she's pretty good at. Maybe even that's an understatement. She's quite good at it. She's almost a natural at it. It's something that we saw early on that she had the skills for. And she looked forward to managing a household. She looked forward to being in charge. And she knew she'd be good at it. And she, and she is. So things have improved, but she's clearly still a prisoner. She sees a falcon out the window and wishes she could fly away too, making it as clear as her incredible view. It's a really, really incredible view, by the way. It's, she can see from the top of the area, she can see the armies massing at the bottom. And wow, I can, can barely picture that, but it must be incredible. We have this implication that Littlefinger gave Sansa Lysa's wardrobe. It reminds us a bit of... Tywin's father, Titos, giving his lover his mom's jewel or his wife's jewels, Tywin's mom's jewels. Now, of course, it's not quite the same because Tywin was upset about this lowborn woman getting that. Now, Elaine is a bastard, technically or not technically, which isn't the same, but it's a similar level of, of insult to the Veilman. So they're very careful not to have her wear a dress like this when the Lord's Declarant arrived, she was dressed like a Tully, and they're like, Littlefinger's like, nah, we can't go that way. You better dress, you know, more nondescript. 
a theme here is winter taking over the Erie. And we wonder, are we ever going to see people come back here? I mean, the Vale is not the most important center of the action. You can kind of see as far as the long term, it's certainly important right now. But it feels like in the long term, Santa's going to go back north. Mm, I don't know that there'll be a lot of focus on the Vale as a region near the end. I could be wrong. There might be a lot of stuff that happens here. But it feels like we may never come back to the Erie. Winter's going to come. It drives everyone away from it. I'm curious about that. Santa's already feeling it, even though it's not here. Quote. It will be worse when winter has us in its grip, she thought. Winter will make this place as cold as any tomb. Interesting association there. Winter and tombs. Sansa returning to Winterfell seems pretty likely. So maybe the Crypts of Winterfell is getting a nod here. How she'll play a role in defending against Winter in her home. This really does feel like a lot of commenters mentioned this chapter feels like she's a queen of winter here, or at least a princess of winter, because she's amidst all this cold and silence and thinking about it, but also feeling somewhat home in it, you know, like she doesn't love it, but it doesn't disturb or upset her either. And she might love it if it was taking place at home. And this is also an interesting, maybe groundwork setup for what life in the midst of winter will be like. I mean, this is really telling, quote. There was no quieter castle in all the seven kingdoms. The servants here were few and old and kept their voices down so as to not excite the young lord. There were no horses on the mountain, no hounds to bark and growl, no knights training in the yard. Even the footsteps of the guards seemed strangely muffled as they walked the pale stone halls. She could hear the wind moaning and sighing round the towers, but that was all. When she had first come to the Erie, there had been mur the murmur of Alyssa's tears as well, but the waterfall was frozen now. Yeah, there's not, there's basically nothing. There's no sounds. I mean, you can, you can imagine that in other places around Westeros. Think about that in the north. No insects, no any sort of animals, no roosters crowing in the morning. There's all these other sounds that would be normal that aren't mentioned here would also be completely silent. And boy, that is really, it's scary, right? Like sounds can be comforting, normal noises, the parts of our routine, you don't notice them until they're gone. And then the world just feels so different without little sounds and sounds of life everywhere. And, and when there's no sounds, that means there's no life. And that really, really suggests winter quite well. It's very evocative, provocative, all those things. And of course, they have no food. Well, they do have food. They just don't have the better foods. They're slow and they're going to run out of even the staples eventually if something doesn't happen. It's not imminent, but it is a concern. It's sort of a soft siege of sorts. They're not letting more food get up to the Erie. They're not exactly performing a normal siege, but it's having a lot of the same effects of it. Ironically, one of the big effects is Robert Aaron himself being an impatient, unhealthy child who's kind of used to getting what he wants. He's acting up even more because of this situation. And it's almost like he forces their hand a little bit. He's the true siege here. <laughs> One really curious piece here is how Robert continues to hear Marillion. It's really quite unusual. I, there's theories that it's a bit of skin changing. I don't know why it would be skin changing if he hears Marillion. That's not an animal. I mean, that's a person. 
But I think it's who it's it might just be bad dreams. After all, that's the person who killed his mother. He'd be haunted by the voice of the person that caused this trauma that took his mother away. Of course, it's not true, but that's what he's been told to believe. Another possibility is suggested by Archmaster Emma that he's hearing the wind. The wind blows and creates all sorts of sounds. It's a topic that comes up or a feature that comes up in other places, like at the Whispers or near Hard Home. Yeah, you know, sometimes they say you hear what you want to hear. Robert's hearing what he doesn't want to hear. <laughs> that makes sense. Nina writes, this is really one of the tragedies of this chapter. No one actually cares about Robert Aaron. They care about the title. And that's something that Sansa can understand and sympathize with. Littlefinger's just openly disgusted by Robert's seizure, and he's callous, very callous around him, just pointing out that his mom's dead, that power's in his hands, all these things that are just no sensitivity, no sympathy at all, just a reminder of, of how cruel that man is. The Lord's Declarant say they're looking out for Lord Aaron, but even they aren't really doing that. Littlefinger points out, oh, you're backing him and supporting him even while denying him food? Littlefinger is nothing but not clever at how he presents his arguments. And that's a pretty good one. He's like, well, how can you claim to be supporting this child if you're starving him out? They don't really have a good answer for that. <laughs> Maester Coleman, who should have every interest in keeping Robert physically healthy, is willingly poisoning him. The sweet sleep starts around here and is going to continue and has been widely believed widely theorized as the thing that's going to finish him off eventually, and it will seem somewhat natural. However, it's also kind of easy to see who's going to take the blame. The maester that's given it to him. Like, Littlefinger can easily just say, oh, the maester gave him too much. It's clearly his fault. Throw him under the bus. Just like he blames the singer for Lysa's death, he can blame the maester for Robert Aaron's death. Maybe we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, but it's really easy to see how he could pull that off. And again, it's just an example of Robert Aaron. The child doesn't seem to matter to hardly anyone, except maybe Sansa. And even she is annoyed by him regularly. <laughs> Harrenhal comes up. There's maybe a weird typo here where how strong gets mentioned twice. It wouldn't necessarily show up as a typo since the word is correctly spelled. But there's... No, nothing to indicate that the Strongs had two separate runs at Harrenhal. It is possible, but that's not how I operate. Anyway, that's a very small detail. Talking about the curse is funny. Harrenhal, he, he, he seems to have really no intent whatsoever of ever going to that castle. Just more reinforces the idea that he was interested in the title, that he needed to have the title to marry Lysa, which Tyrion suspected at the time. It all makes sense. But it is kind of funny to think about. He's just, meh, giant castle. I don't care. <laughs> I don't need it. I don't want it. It's expensive. It's, it's a big ruin. Meh. But it doesn't mean it won't impact him. He talk, They kind of joke about It's not a joke, really, but they talk about the curse you know, kind of non-seriously. And you wonder, though, it might, it might still get him just because he never goes there. Well, he, he's probably going to die. I don't know if we could call that the curse, but... <laughs> not going to work out for him one way or the other, I don't think. Let's talk about the actual Lord's Declarant. This is when we really see, to use a video game term, Sansa seems to have leveled up. Her observations using very small, minor details about physical uh, qualities or mannerisms, 
just lots of really small details. This is clever. This is really smart. This is really uh, observant, very right brain. She's piecing things together without knowing exactly why, but it's accurate. I love to see it. Not only is Littlefinger really clever here, uh, but so is Sansa with her learning. And you can see that progressing. But there's also some subtext to just how the room is arranged. There's some really interesting soft politics here. Putting out food and wine isn't just polite. It's insurance for the airy household, meaning the guest right issue. If you accept food, it's the same as giving food in terms of guest right. Sansa correctly bets on the fact that they're too respectful of tradition to cross that line. That, and indeed they are. The <laughs> guest right is a big deal. The Vale Lords, especially because they're so big on tradition and decorum, well, guest right's at the top of the list, so that's pretty straightforward almost. Setting out scented candles that Lord Waxley gave to Lysa won't just help the conference see when it gets dark. It'll hopefully make the mood less tense in what's a very delicate situation. Arranging the table and chairs is really interesting. We saw that on TV. It's harder to visualize what's happening, but there's the, uh, that issue here as well. Six chairs on one side, two on the other, and which there's nine people though, not even counting Sansa, there's nine. So Lynn Corbrace is left standing by the hearth, which is somewhat intentional. He can be a little more menacing, a little more, it seems like he's left out. And it forces Nestor Royce to sit by Littlefinger, which Littlefinger was really counting on his support. Nestor may not have intended to make it so blatant visually by sitting right next to Littlefinger while everyone else is on the other side of the table. But the seating arrangement made that almost an automatic. So he, you could see in the chapter, he pauses for a minute, kind of looks at the chairs and is like, well, I guess I have to sit right here. There's really, it's, it's funny how he, He's this powerful lord, but he just has to take this one seat. <laughs> he has to, it's a seating arrangement. He, the, the main factor in this chapter is the rules being used against the people that uphold the rules, right? The traditions backfire on these, on these lords declarant, but it isn't just the main thrust of it. It isn't just the main task here, the main issue being little uh, Robert Aaron's minority and getting that year that, that Littlefinger wanted. It's set up with these little details too, with not just the main argument of, or the main uh, bit of Lynn Corbray interrupting and causing a scene, which was obviously planned in advance, but Littlefinger's plan to act like he's one of them. And, of, and little things like this seating arrangement. All these things are part of the act. They're all part of the stage here, and they're all important. Once the lords get to meeting Peter in the solar after getting past some happily placed murder holes and such, <laughs> we get to see him act like he's one of them, which I mentioned a second ago. It's what Joe calls it, wrong footing them. He's like, they're like, we want to put an end to this misrule. And he's like, yeah, I'm with you. And it's because they, they sealed their own fate a bit by... They're same aristocratic traditions. They didn't name Littlefinger. They didn't say Littlefinger has to go. They said these counselors, these evil counselors that are causing misrule, these false friends. They specifically didn't name Peter in their declaration against false friends and evil counselors. He's able to get around that and say, well, yeah, I'm on your side too. Let's get rid of these evil counselors. Name them. Now, of course... To name them would almost be dishonoring themselves. That's how they work. They, they want to, they don't want to 
put names to these characters, these figures, because they're beneath that. Or it's been, they're, they're above that, I suppose you could say. This doesn't work on someone like Littlefinger. These traditions and cultural behaviors amongst these high nobles only work on other people who follow those same rules. But Littlefinger is just able to completely turn it to his advantage and play them like a fiddle. Before the actual meeting, we talk a little bit about the Corbray brothers. Now, it's, it's set up in a way that makes it sound like they're on opposite sides. It's more accurate to say they have a feud over the Valyrian steel blade lady forlorn. That doesn't mean they're actually on opposite sides of everything, but it's a perfect opportunity to make it seem that way. So Lynn Corbray, Lionel Corbray appears to be Littlefinger's ally, thus Lynn Corbray appears to be his enemy. Now, as we know quite well, Lynn Corbray is also Littlefinger's ally. But that doesn't mean he's his brother's friend. These two things do not have to go together. So he is very effectively, um, we could call him a double agent. And, well, there's an excellent quote about him right here. Lynn Corbray had slain almost as many men in duels as he had in battle. He had won his spurs during Robert's Rebellion, she knew, fighting first against Lord John Arryn at the gates of Gulltown and later beneath his banners on the Trident, where he had cut down Prince Lewin of Dorne, a white knight of the Kingsguard. Peter said that Prince Lewin had been sorely wounded by the time the tide of battle swept him to his final dance with Lady Forlorn, but added, That's not a point you'll want to raise with Corbray, though. Those who do are soon given the chance to ask Martell himself the truth of it down in the halls of hell. Kind of like the reverse Darkstar. He comes set up as like ready for a fight, handsome, cocky, argues with pretty much everybody, doesn't seem to want to be friends with anyone at all. But in this case, he's a double agent, which maybe Darkstar was too. But where Darkstar was intentionally trying to start a war, Lynn Corbray is intentionally trying to just break up an agreement here. It's not quite the same thing. He does want to fight. He does. He would love a war because he's that type of guy. But that's not really on the table here. He actually smiles at Lothar. This is one of the many things you can catch when you know what Littlefinger is doing. So you reread this chapter, you can appreciate how clever it is because you see all the little setup details that you may not have noticed the first time because you were caught up in it as well. You were fooled along with the Lord's Declarant. Maybe you knew something was going on, but without knowing the full extent of it, you can't catch the details. For example, the smile that passes between Lynn Corbray and Lothar Brune because they know that they're going to act like they're going to fight. And here's the quote. Your apple eater holds a blade. Tell him to give it to you or draw that dagger. He calls him a apple eater because Lothar, Lothar Brune got that nickname by beating a bunch of members of House Fossilway. And, well, we're killing, really, <laughs> at, uh, during the Battle of the Blackwater. So he showed himself to be a pretty powerful warrior. And, well, that would have been a something if they had fought. My money would have been on Corbray, but still, they were never going to fight in the first place. It just looked like it. Immediately, we see the value of Baelish setting his seeds with Nestor Royce, too, because he basically gets Nestor to jump in on his side early on when they're talking about Elaine. Lynn also jumps in. Rather, when Jan Royce is like, do I know you? Nestor kind of interrupts, and then Lynn interrupts as well. You can see why they do that. It's not just an accident. It's taking the focus away from Elaine, which 
probably indicates Lynn knows who she is. And we know Nestor Royce does. <laughs> now, uh, he, here's another example of how he uses, specifically of how he uses their codes of conduct against them. You dare call me untrustworthy? It was not me who bared steel at a parlay. You write of defending Lord Robert even as you deny him food. That must end. I am no warrior, but I will fight you if you do not lift this siege. There are other lords besides you in the Vale, and King's Landing will send men as well. If it is war you want, say so now and the Vale will bleed. Elaine could see the doubt blooming in the eyes of the Lord's Declarant. So Littlefinger tries to do on a small scale at the beginning of the meeting what he'll tell Sansa he's going to do to the Lord's Declarant later. He wants to suggest that they can be divided against each other by questioning where Robert will be fostered. Later, he'll split them up and individually undermine them. It's pretty clever. Right in front of them, he gets them to bicker. They come, they present a united front, but he picks away at that immediately by saying, well, yeah, well, who, where, where would he be then? And, and where should Aerie the Air rest? So they, they, he gets them to argue about within amongst themselves a little bit about some of these same power games that they are focused on him. He kind of spreads the, the heat around, so to speak. Now, it looks like Jan Royce figures out by the end, based on the result. It, it, he didn't maybe see it happening, but once it's all played out, he realizes that they've been played. He's very suspicious of Littlefinger in the first place, so he's looking for something like this, but he didn't see it until it was already too late. And, well, here's the quote. There is no need. It is plain that he has won. Bronze Jan's gray eyes considered Peter Baelish. I like it not, but it would seem you have your year. Best use it well, my lord. Not all of us are fools. He opened the door so forcefully that he all but wrenched it off its hinges. Littlefinger makes some predictions about what's going to happen to a lot of these lords and how the rest of it's going to play out. And, well, let's quote that and review his predictions. Redford and Wainwood are old. One or both of them may die. Gilwood Hunter will be murdered by his brothers, most likely by young Harlan, who arranged Lord Eon's death. In for a penny, in for a stag, I always say. Belmore is corrupt and can be bought. Templeton, I shall befriend. Bronzion Royce will continue to be hostile, I fear, but so long as he stands alone, he is not so much a threat. So Sansa thinks about Jan's connection to the Starks. There's a pretty major connection here. He was friends with Ned. He went hunting with Ned and Robert. He was on the boar hunt that Robert got killed on, but he left when the hunt got extended. So before Robert was actually mortally wounded, but he had initially been part of it. Remember too that it's his son that was Waymar Royce, and Waymar actually gets mentioned in this chapter. Sansa thinks about him passing through Winterfell on his way to the Wall. And of course, Robar Royce was Waymar's older brother who fought in Renly's Rainbow Guard and was killed by Loras after Renly's death when, you know, Loras was all enraged, etc. Those are the second, third sons. Jan's oldest son, Andar, is still around. Sansa thinks that these guys didn't fight for Rob. He's like, he, he, he wonders if, or she wonders if, Revealing herself to him would be the right thing to do, but she has this doubt because, yeah, well, he didn't even fight for their family in the war. Now, as we know, he badly, badly wanted to, but she doesn't know that, so she can't act on that information. And, well, if the TV shows any indication, Jan Royce is going to be a part of things in the North. And now maybe there's not a... I wouldn't necessarily take that to heart because... 
the TV show just shrinks everything and make, makes it simpler. So maybe that's why Jan Royce, the one of the few characters they bothered to cast, is the one that got focused on. Still, with his connection to the Starks, it does make sense. So I'm kind of hoping he survives the, the short-term events and goes north and maybe even has a role in fighting against Winter. That would be pretty cool. So he may end up fighting for her family after all. In addition to the Royces having a connection to the Starks, well, the Red Forts have a connection to the Boltons. Not a major connection, but, you know, Red Fort, Dread Fort. No, <laughs> That's, that name's just more of a coincidence, but it is funny. So this is Horton Redford, who is the father of Michael Redford. Michael Redford is the one who was supposedly the lover of Mia Stone, the, the mule girl, <laughs> Robert's daughter. And Roose Bolton's past son, Domerick, was a squire at the Redford. So he would have perhaps known a lot of these people. Anya Wainwood's really crucial here. Uh, she has Aerie the heir. She's the one in possession of the heir to the veil. And Littlefinger does indeed predict that she may die. She doesn't. Instead, he buys up all her debt, which is basically bribing her. He says, look, I will cancel this debt if you do what I say. But if not, you're still going to have to pay all this. So it's kind of like a bribe in that he's getting, removing a lot of money she owes and rather than paying her. Same difference, really. And we'll see, not long from now, she's going to agree to the Sansa-Harry their marriage when we get into the, the Winds of Winter, or even as late as this book. So around then, you can see that wheel has turned, which is funny because the Waynewood symbol is a broken wheel. <laughs> Gilwood Hunter, he says, will die. Harlan will probably be the one who kills him. We, I wonder how Littlefinger knows that it was Harlan that did it. Maybe he helped. <laughs> I don't know. But Gilwood Hunter is not dead yet. So, uh, I mean, not that much time has passed, but maybe it will. He says that Belmore is corrupt. And Marwyn Belmore, who is a relation of Lord Belmore, was the captain of the guards at the Erie. He was dismissed by Littlefinger, replaced by Lothor Brune. But now Marwyn Belmore is captain of the guards at the Gates of the Moon. So it was more of a lateral move, maybe a slight loss of prestige, but he still landed on his feet and is on Littlefinger's side since Marwyn Belmore is working for Nestor Royce, who is dependent on Littlefinger to keep the Gates of the Moon in the first place. So they both are kind of dependent on that. Templeton's, the Templeton's, that's the Knight of Nine Stars. Now he looks more like Darkstar, but I don't know much about his personality. Very handsome. Uh, there's a possible Stark blood connection here. Cat recalls that Jocelyn Stark, who was the daughter of William and Melantha Blackwood, William Stark, or Willem, not William, Willem Stark and Melantha Blackwood, Willem being the older brother of Artos the Implacable, and Jocelyn was sister to Edwile Stark, and Edwile is Ned's grandfather, so Sansa's great-grandfather. Jocelyn married Benedict Royce, and they had three daughters, and those daughters married a Wainwood, a Corbray, so we've already got two houses mentioned, and the third, a Templeton. So there we go, the Knight of Nine Stars, there's the Stark blood connection. We see more evidence that Littlefinger has made progress with some of these characters, including Simon Templeton, the Knight of Nine Stars, when we see Lionel Corbray's wedding, which Templeton attends, and so does Anya Wainwood. So that's a clear sign that they're now on Littlefinger's side. They're going to, going to Corbray's wedding, and this Corbray is very much on, on Littlefinger's side openly. 
And we come to the talk about Cersei. And I wonder what this is all about. Very interesting questions raised by this paragraph here. I might have to remove her from the game sooner than I'd planned, provided she does not remove herself first. (laughs) Peter teased her with a little smile. In the Game of Thrones, even the humblest pieces can have wills of their own. Sometimes they refuse to make the moves you've planned for them. Mark that well, Elaine. It's a lesson that Cersei Lannister still has yet to learn. Mm -hmm. I think Elaine's learning it. Yeah, (laughs) I think so. I think she marked it well indeed. How would he do this, though, I wonder? I wonder how what his plan would have been to remove her from the game. Maybe just the Kettleblacks? Speaking of removing themselves first, the Kettleblacks are, by getting too close to Cersei, she's getting them removed. I wonder what moves... He says, I had planned for her. Moves that I had planned for her to make, like forcing her to do things. Well, he certainly had moves planned for Joffrey. He manipulated Joffrey pretty effectively. And he certainly has Cersei believing that he's not really that dangerous. So he definitely had her fooled pretty well. But I do do wonder what that is. If y'all have suggestions, this is one that's a pretty wide open question. I'd love to hear from anybody about uh, what ideas, Littlefinger, what was he going to get Cersei to do? Or what is he still trying to get Cersei to do? How many moves that come through the Kettleblacks actually come through him? Although, according to him, he's been losing control of them a bit because because of their closeness to Cersei and just proximity to other power centers that aren't him, considering he's operating in the veil. We wonder about the hair dye a little bit. It's it's probably a small plot point. It may not end up mattering, but she thinks of what'll happen if she runs out. And that is an interesting consideration. I mean, it seems like such a small thing, but imagine her whole identity being undone by lack of hair dye. It seems entirely possible. I mean, with winter coming, supplies might be hard to come by. Hair dye is an extreme rarity uh, in Westeros. It's not like you know, the, the modern world where you can buy hair dye at like any grocery store. So keep that in mind. That's actually potentially important. It could also just end up being nothing, but I wouldn't forget about it. We have more and more focus on Valyrian steel. Lady Forlorn is perhaps one of the most famous Valyrian steel blades in all the Seven Kingdoms. Certainly not as famous as, say, Blackfire or Dark Sister, but hey, those two swords don't get mentioned in A Song of Ice and Fire, even though they're mentioned quite a lot in the history books and in Dunkin' Egg, etc. Technically, Lady Forlorn has mentioned more than them in the main series, probably more than any Valyrian steel blade other than ice, I think. It's pretty close. And it's a very famous sword. The Corbrays pop up a lot in history. They're a major part of the Vale becoming andalized. And they've had some famous marriages and they've had, well, other dead Kingsguards in the past and a famous Kingsguard that dueled Damon Blackfire during the Battle of Redgrass Field. Supposedly they fought for an hour and Lady Forlorn clashed with Blackfire, a rarity when two extremely top-of-their-game warriors actually face each other, both wielding Valyrian steel. Not a very common occurrence. That must have been something. And indeed, according to the histories, it was. So we talk about Tommen and Marcella as commodities, but as mentioned in Sansa's last chapter, Robert is pretty much the same, just on a smaller scale. And he's liked a lot less. He gets a lot less attention. That's something we'll see in Cersei's chapter is Tommen is overwhelmed by fans, you know, especially his in-laws and their cousins. They're constantly cheering him on and giving him a social network. Cersei sees it as somewhat cynical as they're trying to 
win him over. And she's not entirely wrong, but better that than just being ignored and having no support system and no friends at all, which is basically what Robert Aaron has. Little kind of Santa's kind of like his only friend. It's no wonder she he gloms onto her. Santa wishes Littlefinger would give the give Heron Hall to the phrase, <laughs> which is a parallel. Nina points out to Arya, thinking about how the phrase would be on her list if she knew their names. They, of course, have obvious reasons to hate the phrase. And Nina writes, maybe Littlefinger shouldn't be so dismissive of the curse of Heron Hall because look what happened to Tywin. And what's probably going to happen to Roose Bolton? And look where you're headed. Now, Littlefinger doesn't have a child, but that is the parallel here. Tywin was killed by his own son. Roose Bolton maybe will be killed by his own son. And well, if Littlefinger is killed, it'll be by his daughter, in quotes, quite possibly. So that could be an even bigger parallel than we, than we know. It might shape itself into that in the long run. Okay. Couple of takes from you guys. Thanks to Karen Sita here for sends a super chat. She says, "Is Peter Wright and Heron Hall really cursed?" I don't think it's really cursed, but I think that people believe in it being cursed, and that has a huge effect. That is really big deal. Um, people thinking in a superstitious society, people acting like it's cursed, gets us half the way there. The curse is effectively partly real because people believe it's so. But also, I just think it's cursed in a non-literal way. As Littlefinger says, it's a, it's a financial ruin. If trying to use and operate that castle will make you broke because it doesn't have enough land to support itself. It used to. That's part of why it used to be more powerful. It, uh, it, controlled more of the controlling, uh, it controlled more of the countryside and thus could tax that and support itself. But part of reducing Hall's power was reducing its land. And so it is kind of a black hole. It's, it's like the equivalent of, I don't know, that movie, The Money Pit, where, yeah, it looks fancy and big and amazing, but it's actually more, costs more to upkeep it than it benefits you. So in that, so you could say it's more of a financial curse, like a toxic asset in that sense. As far as ghosts and, and deaths like that, I'm a little skeptical. But this is Westeros. It definitely could be real. There definitely could be something to that. Stefan B wonders about the hair dye too. Like when did that, how far in advance did Littlefinger plan this? Did he have that hair dye ready knowing he was going to have her color her hair to be in disguise? Like how far in advance did he think of all this? That's, that's a good point. How far in advance did he plan for that? Lady Leaf on Flick makes the note that Sansa wishes she was a, a bird or had wings that could fly away, which is a nice nod to Sandor calling her a little bird. Bran Winslow points out the opener the look, how she's high atop the world, atop this mountain, looking down. And it's a lot like Danny atop the pyramid at Marine. It's, it's, she, the, the feelings are different. Danny's wondering if this is what a god feels like, but it's still this, this girl of about the same age looking down on the world and kind of being kind of isolated at the same time. Rand Winslow also mentions something I can't help but think about, even though, like he says, there's no reason to suspect any magic here, but what is George doing by having Lady Forlorn with a ruby and that heart sigil of, of the Corbrays standing by the fireplace? It's just so very Stannis and Melisandre, but there's no reason to connect them to this at all. And I, my only explanation for this is that the veil is a place where a lot of these powers don't exist. 
they're muted. Like the Weirwood network doesn't seem to stretch into the veil very well or at all, or the power has been stripped. And I wonder if that's what's suggested here. These items, these pieces of power, these symbols of power exist here, but they don't have the same power or meaning that they do elsewhere in the world. Okay, well, that's the end of that chapter. That's the Simpsons reference, wasn't it? That's the end of that chapter. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. 35. The Iron Bank will not have its due, a.k.a. the one where Ares rejects Cersei. While the rest of the POVs are seeing failure left and right, plans falling apart, Cersei's still laying them. She hasn't started paying interest on these mistakes yet. And while she might be able to dodge some of the consequences because she's so powerful and because she's got cunning, it becomes increasingly clear that Cersei is blind to what's coming. You can't dodge what's coming if you don't see it. She's almost like Luthor Tyrell, Olena's deceased husband, the one who was so intent on a sky-high target that he rode right off a cliff. That does fit Cersei pretty well. A husband who died chasing after animals is one of the few things Olena and Cersei have in common, which leads to being the sole parent, giving them one more thing in common. We're also getting deeper and deeper into her memories with another formative moment or three. It's powerful stuff, but the chapter starts off almost amusingly. The king was pouting. Yeah. <laughs> the chapter opens with yet another moment of Cer Cersei's hypocrisy. Cersei's annoyed that Tommen is being defiant about wanting to sit the Iron Throne, yet at Tywin's funeral, Cersei was annoyed that Tommen was obedient about riding in her litter instead of on his horse. So, like, he can't seem to win here. She's going to push back against him no matter what he does. That's not sending a good lesson, is it? For Cersei, Joffrey seemed to symbolize her own defiance against Robert, epitomized by... This Estremont example coming later in this chapter. Having Joffrey sit the Iron Throne after she'd helped murder Robert was almost like a form of vengeance, almost like I win against Robert. But here, it's not the same thing because there's no Robert to spit in the face of. He's long gone. So she's aware of this disparity in power tied to gender. She's queen regent, ruler of the country, but she complains internally about how she's constantly balked and provoked and how people don't just listen to her like they do Tywin. And that the fact that she's forbidden to sit the Iron Throne, even when things like the Iron Bank's envoy comes to see her, she has to sit in a chair, things like that. These are reminders of these limits and these caps on her power that are insulting to her. A child can sit the Iron Throne, but she can't. That's, this is, that's, kind of see why that's unfair. But she's not entirely right. Gender absolutely plays a role here, but she's also just not a very good ruler. She's also not good at making friends. She's good at making enemies, and that has as much to do with anything here. On the other hand, too, with, with children sitting the throne, that's becoming semi-normal around the realm, or at least on plot lines we're focused on. But that's because there's so much death, so much war. So many lords and ladies have been killed. Children holding inherited places happens when families are losing so many of their members. I mean, Winterfell's up for grabs, but by law, one could say it belongs to Rob's siblings, not even counting his will. 
which would be another young person if we did count as Will. We just saw Tom and Sister Marcel almost get foisted on Dorne, and we just saw a chapter with a lot of focus on who gets to control Robert Aaron. These are all children rulers, basically. A major exception, though, King Euron. <laughs> the idea that in the far west we have an arcane super pirate who takes psychedelics and loots ancient artifacts while cutting the tongues from the mouths of many of his own followers, and in the east, the king is pouting. <laughs> he wants to cancel beats and have kittens. Euron wants to cancel gods and have dragons. This is about as opposite as you can get. These are not the same playing fields. And we don't even need to thank the king's moot for that. Euron would have been king by the same system of laws that made Tommen king. He just happened to win both systems, as it turned out. Now, of course, minus the part that Tommen isn't really Robert's son, but you know what I mean. There's major differences with Tommen and Robert Aaron, even though. Not as major, but notice how we, we just got through talking about Robert being ignored as a human being. Tommen's given huge amounts of attention. His mother, his betrothed, her friends. A lot of it's the Tyrells, like I said, and houses close to theirs, but still, it's good for his development. But Cersei hates it. If an engineer were to take a look at Cersei to understand her mind in a systematic way, they might say, well, the problem here is this person's brain works at low capacity when hate is involved. And, well, this person seems to hate lots of things, most things. So that's a problematic feedback loop there. Notice how Cersei is sloppy with her speech when trying to one-up Marjorie in front of her friends. This is when Tommen was jousting and she mentions his father ruling the lists. She met Jamie, of course, and Marjorie notices and says, what tourneys did he win? So she's caught, and as usual, when Cersei is faced with embarrassment, she just makes a brave face and leaves, kind of, it's a common enough Cersei tactic. Get the last word. It looks bad, but it could look worse, so... It looked bad in general. When she showed up, she's being a wet blanket about this moment with Tommen being praised, and she comes in and it's like, takes the spotlight away from her son. She makes the same mistake as the chapter begins, though. She realizes this mistake in speech because Marjorie calls her out on it, but before this scene, she says to Tommen, Robert, instead of your father. You know, if you're looking for that, it stands out. Like, who calls their, who says to their son, you know, their father, their husband's first name instead of your father? That's very, that really stands out if you look at it that way. So what does Tommen think when he hears things like that? What does a seven-year-old brain do with that? But errors like this are a different sort of animal than, say, Cersei's bad judgment or her short-sightedness. This is, this is a loss of focus. This is kind of sloppy. And I think it's a great, super subtle, George R. R. Martin-style clue to show that Cersei is dealing with too much, that she's fraying at the edges a bit. She doesn't have enough people she can trust, so she's getting involved with everything, she sees enemies in every corner, plus she's drinking a lot. That's terrible for your mental health. And that's why these little cracks are starting to show. It's also a great example of how hard it is to have so many lies going at once. It's often referred to in the real world, you know, aptly of juggling, right? You're, you're, you've got a bunch of different lies and trying to keep them all in play without any of them being discovered is really difficult. That puts a lot of stress on you. The truth is just easier, usually. But it's easier in that you don't have to remember anything different. It's just, well, that's what happened. You don't have to invent a story and then remember that story and keep the details separate. It's just a lot more work. And Cersei's doing this over and over in a lot of different places. It's also a great example of Marjorie's skill at banter. We wonder 
because her TV version was so much more prominent um, and Marjorie on TV was older and took a more active role. So we wonder what her skill level and differences of personality are here in the books. She doesn't have as much screen time, but here's a clue that she's pretty darn clever and good with banter. And the influence seems clear enough. She didn't learn that from Mace. She may have gotten some of that from her mother. We haven't seen her mother on screen much at all. But Olena, that seems very likely the source as a mentor for this sort of thing. Also, it's a reminder that everyone knows Tommen isn't Robert's son. It's just one of those open secrets. But Cersei shouldn't be worried about that. The Tyrells aren't going to spill that secret. If the Tyrells spill the secret that Tommen isn't Cersei's or that isn't Robert's son, they lose their power too. She's almost like, hey, Cersei, don't blow the cover here for all of us. As much as I criticize Cersei, of course, I love her chapters. They're fantastic. There's just so much information. It's like every sentence you can write pages on. And of course, it doesn't mean she's not extremely dangerous. Like the Mad King, she continues to emulate unknowingly erratic or unpredictable behavior from a ruler is terrifying to those close by. You never know if she's going to turn on you. You never, and you can't give her any reason at all to think you're working against her. She, a little seed of paranoia, and it grows majorly. Just look at how many people have turned Cersei, have turned, been turned against Cersei or Cersei against them just with little rumors. Like a, a single half gold coin in Rugen's cell got Cersei's wheels spinning all over the place, thinking the Tyrells are working against her. I mean, that was not hard to do. And as I said at the time, it was the cost of one half gold piece. And that's a good, for that price, you get Cersei this distracted, this offer game. It's just too easy. So her worrying over the Tyrells distracts her from greater dangers or at least other significant dangers. We don't actually know how to rate, put numbers on these dangers after all. So she threatens to name a Dornish master at arms over Loras. This is a perfect example of being distracted from one by one danger, ignoring another, because Loras's influence over Tommen is one thing. She may even be right to avoid that. She might be on the right track. Like, keep Loras away from Tommen. That might actually be smart. But replacing him with a Dornishman, when the Dornish, multiple Dornish factions would love to see her and or Tommen dead, you're just giving these plotters a gift by taking one away from other plotters that are probably less dangerous than <laughs> the Dornish. And, and she should be aware of this. The, the reasons why the Dornish are upset with House Lannister is bloody straightforward, right? But here's how it goes through her mind. Here's the quote. I could send to Dorne. Centuries of blood and war lay between Sunspear and Highgard. Yes, the Dornishman might suit my needs admirably. There must be some good swords in Dorne. And then more reason for her to be suspicious of Dorne, as if there wasn't already information she already had, we get this when she's talking to Kyburn. Kyburn's like trying to get her to see the point. She says, why should that concern me? He shrugged. I do not say it should, but Damon Sand and the Santagar girl were both close to Prince Doran's own daughter, Ariane, or so the Dornishmen would have us believe. Perhaps it means little or less, but I thought your grace should know. Indeed, that's evidence of what we just saw play out. Kyburn's on the right track. Arianne's friends being punished is important and relevant to Marcella. Joe Buckley says what it tells us more is that Kyburn has some really reliable informants in Dorne, or perhaps Doran has some good people whispering uh, what he wants Kyburn to hear. 
We also wonder the fact that Kyburn doesn't push this might mean that he's just wary of the same things we are, we were, that we were just pointing to, that, you know, you don't want to make Cersei angry for any reason. So just even if this information she should have, pick your battles. But it could also mean that Kyburn is like almost anyone else probably that's loyal to Cersei, loyal in quotes, that he's just using her for as much as he can get, expecting this to be a short-term thing. He's going to jump ship when he sees the ship sinking, quite possibly. Or maybe he'll go down with it. Who knows? We're not sure about Kyburn, but he's no dummy, unlike a lot of the other people she's appointed. And uh, he, he may want to save his own skin at some point when the opportunity comes. We'll see. We shall see. Keep in mind, too, that Cersei is bringing Marcella back or trying to bring Marcella back. Now, if she wasn't doing that, this whole plan to bring a Dornishman in would be even worse. She's taking away the leverage they have over Marcella, but then again, if she puts a Dornish master at arms next to the king, they get that leverage right back, or even better leverage because it's the king instead of the king's sister. However, well, hmm, we wonder about that. We wonder if whether what the plan is from Kyburn's point of view and what the plan is from Doran's point of view and what they're actually trying to get accomplished here. Another theme with Cersei's chapters that makes them really interesting and so overflowing with detail is how this, this is a perfect example, which has happened here. She's brought up this really important situation in Dorne that she ignores. We still need to analyze it because even though she's ignoring it because it's relevant to this plot line, it's a huge plot point and it's going to affect so much coming. But she uses it as an opportunity to think about something completely irrelevant Interesting, but irrelevant to the Dornish point, which is she thinks about Estermont and how Joffrey was conceived there and how it was putting horns on Robert. And she's wondering why Stefan Baratheon, Robert's father, married Cassana Estermont in the first place. And I, I wonder if that's going to come back up, whether the Estermonts have a relevance in that sense or whether Robert's and Stannis's father's marriage was political for some reason that's going to be relevant later. Either way, it has nothing to do with this Dornish stuff except for the connection of Spotted Silva marrying Lord Estermont. Cersei thinks of the cousin that Robert slept with there. We don't even know what cousin Robert slept with, but we do know the Estermonts are loyal to Stannis, except that their castle has been taken by the Golden Company. Last we hear, John Connington orders Mark Mandrake, who took the castle, to bring any noble captives to him so... These captive Estermonts will end up at Storm's End, most likely, and maybe, maybe, then, maybe then on to King's Landing. Anyway, another piece of fake information here that is relevant is Davos's fake death. That's what happens here. Now, if my recollection of forums at the time is accurate or remotely comprehensive, people were not buying it. This was, this was one that readers were real skeptical about. The idea that Davos would die off screen. There's plenty of characters dying off screen that people would maybe accept or be less suspicious of. But Davos dying off screen, people were like, mm, I don't know about that. And people were already figuring out that Cersei was being deceived left and right by counselors and reports. So this felt like one of those. Indeed it is. But this is part of why she underestimates Stannis' chances from here on out. She thinks that it's nearly wrapped up up there. But she doesn't realize that not only is he going to have the Iron Bank, which is relevant to this chapter because this is where she starts pushing them away. But she doesn't understand what's happening with the Boltons. She doesn't understand how stubborn Thanos is, how dangerous he is, which Tywin understood, how determined he is, and just Northern politics and how a lot of, even Tywin, this is one thing that she maybe has in common with Tywin is they all underestimated how the North would react to the Red Wedding. It seems like the South 
was upset with it and looked down on the phrase, but mostly they're not doing anything about it, but just kind of side-eyeing them. But the North was taking action and being a lot more outspoken about what happened at the Red Wedding. We wonder, too, about this puppet show. That's a reference to Duncan Egg. There's a lot of references to Duncan Egg in these chapters, obviously, especially Brienne's, but here as well. And in Sam's chapter, too, heck, with Eamon. There's a lot of, maybe that should have been one of the themes, references to Duncan Egg this time around. But yeah, the treasonous puppet show, that's obviously a Duncan Egg hedge night thing. And Kyburn brings that up. I wonder how much, this is a perfect example where Kyburn could just be exaggerating a bit to get more victims. He wants these puppeteers as experiment on. And yikes, yeah. No Sir Duncan around to stop the awful person this time. Cersei actually seems to feel slightly guilty over this or maybe just grossed out. Either way, it's a sharp reminder of how cruel she is because consigning people to Kyburn's dungeons is one of the worst things you can imagine. And she's only a little bit perturbed by this. So it's not hard to see where she got it because it's a similar level of indifference here where cruelty is a tool and the emotional, ethical considerations are largely irrelevant. Nina suggests something cool here, that the puppet show may have been organized by Varus, who would have be, who'd be using it as a test to see how the crowd reacts and how Cersei reacts, too. We're about to, you know, he's there, Varus is going to see what happens to these puppeteers if it's indeed him behind it all. Uh, she points out also that it reminds her of Larys Strong in Fire and Blood, who also vanished during the Dance of the Dragons and seemed to be operating behind the scenes. He may have been, you know, he may have dosed the, pe the peasantry to cause a riot with basilisk blood. That's a theory that's out there. And he certainly did smaller things to undermine Rhaenyra's rule, uh, like spreading the tale that she had Helena murdered, for example, which mm, we could see a somewhat of a repeat of that if we have more Lannisters killed. They won't be or when we have more Lannister kill children murdered, it won't be blamed on Cersei probably, but we may see that as a way to undermine her, saying that she allowed her kids to die or that maybe she had someone else killed. We may see that come back around in some form or fashion, in other words. It's still sick though to me that Kyburn is actually one of Cersei's best decisions from a pragmatic perspective. You know, as awful as he is, he's one of her most reliable men. Uh, but again, can she trust him? So far, it looks like it, but how far can you trust that? I'm quite sure she shouldn't trust Taina Merriweather, but this is a skilled player right here. Taina is a smooth operator. She sees exactly what Cersei's missing in life, where her emotional needs are, and slides right in there to fill that role perfectly. Cool. Yeah, yeah, this quote just perfectly descri describes Tana. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like, wow, she is, she is working this. <laughs> it had been a long day, and Tana's wit always cheered her. Cersei had not had a friend she so enjoyed since Malara Heatherspoon, and Malara had turned out to be a greedy little schemer with ideas above her station. I should not think ill of her. She's dead and drowned, and she taught me never to trust anyone but Jamie. Damn, a 10-year-old girl. She's talking about with a crush on Jamie. Like, she should have trust Malara and not trusted Dana. <laughs> yes, there you go. <laughs> I mean, dang, this is, it's, it's trust to Cersei seems to be like loyalty, right? It's different. It's not like loyalty to her ideal, to what she wants, not loyalty to like concepts or to people. It's like, if you do the things I want, that counts as loyalty, and I would trust you, even though... Those things may be completely self-serving. And it's just a bit warped. And she murders this girl herself. It's not clear here. 
in this chapter, but we know it is what happens. She shoves her into the well. And this is how she justifies it. Yeah, this 10-year-old girl had a crush on my brother. She deserved to die. <laughs> Whoa. Talk about living in your own reality, making your own rules and, and not having them really, uh, not having them really be even or, or just at all. I mean, that is, wow. Damn, Cersei. What 10-year-old girl in the West wasn't going to have a crush on Jamie? Like the description of him and everything like the, the most powerful young prince-like figure, super handsome, great fighter. Like if Cersei murdered every little girl that had a crush on her brother, there'd be like no girls left in the West. <laughs> I think that's how Cersei would want it though. Yeah, you're not, you might be right. Just like, yep, kill them, kill them, kill them. They're not allowed to have those feelings. <laughs> Even though they're going nowhere. Even though Jamie is like, ultra loyal to her in terms of like who he sleeps with. So if she knew, she wouldn't be worried. So she very skillfully manipulates the Stokeworth situation here. You know, I'll give her some credit for that, but makes the mistake on re of relying on idiots. So it's, it's almost like she did a great job with the manipulation, but relying on Balman Birch to his level of intrigue here when she had plenty of signs that he's not a skilled intriguer by his you know, needing to be told is like, oh, say no more, your grace. I understand. She, she thinks, yeah, that was, you, you think that was subtle. I had to spell it out for you. Yet she expects this guy to do the right thing, to manage the situation properly. It's neat too to have another example of the food choice symbolizing what's happening. Cersei's over the top with her displays of sadness and, oh, won't anyone help me? Which she knows is going to work on a, you know, chivalrous night like, Bauman Birch, an over-the-top kind of guy like that. And she serves them Hippocrats, which is extremely sweet. So she's definitely winning them over with tears and sweetness. It's kind of like Lies and Arbor Gold, but it's, you know, crocodile tears and Hippocrats <laughs> instead. Similar concept, different applications, very similar result, but it's another plan that will backfire spectacularly. And here's an ironic line. Do it quickly, if you would. Bronn has only a few men about him now, but if we do not act, he will surely gather more. Is becoming Lord Stokeworth more? <laughs> Is that going to give him an opportunity to gather more men? Yes. In fact, Bronn calling himself Lord Stokeworth and having the allegiance of the castle folk is definitely the exact thing you were trying to avoid that you have now caused. <laughs> Driving wedges between people is... A useful tactic in politics, Varus and Littlefinger. We saw Littlefinger do it brilliantly in the last chapter. Varus has done it many times. Olena's good at it. There's a few others who are skilled at it. Cersei might be the only one I can think of who is aware of the tactic, who leans on this tactic, but consistently does it wrong. One of the examples that she's trying to do is to drive Marjorie and Tommen apart. This is just such an uphill battle. Marjorie, it's not, it's not reasonable that she could actually turn Tommen against Marjorie. Marjorie's charming, beautiful, surrounded by friends who are also winning Tommen over. I mean, this is just an uphill battle that can't be won. So Cersei realizes this on some level, which is why she's using extraordinary means. She's like, well, I'm never going to get Tommen to hate Marjorie, but I can get Marjorie scandalized and just thrown out, which is not a good plan, but Cersei is nothing but, if not stubborn and determined. So it really should be obvious to Cersei why Marjorie is never alone. That comes up in this chapter, Osney and Osmond, this whole plan to, to have her sleep with Osney. He's like, well, she's just never alone. Well, yeah, obviously she's never alone. That's the point. The exact reason 
that Marjorie doesn't sleep alone, that she has other girls in bed with her, these bed maids, is to curtail rumors exactly like the ones Cersei's trying to start. Well, to make real, actually. Same difference, though. That's the point. If you have people around you at all time, it's really hard to start rumors about you having affairs. If every moment of the day you're surrounded by other people, it just it's a hard lie to tell. It's a hard sell to say, yeah, she's cheating on the king. Like, when? <laughs> when would she have done this? It's almost impossible. It's sort of like a reverse Sarah Targaryen here, if y'all are familiar with Fire and Blood. This is a good catch from Nina. Jaehaerys and Alysanne assumed Sarah could get into no trouble with her suitors because there was always people around. It's the same thing with Sarah. But Sarah was really good at avoiding this by being mean to the servants and ordering them to leave and by ordering them to not talk. It's a pretty bad example or good example of powerful people abusing the servants or the less powerful and bringing them into their schemes and making them responsible and complicit. And like we saw that with Sunel. Sunel probably didn't do anything, but Taina tricked Cersei into thinking she did. And now she's being tortured by Kyburn for that. This is a major theme in A Feast for Crows. Brienne's chapter, which is coming up next, we get the broken man speech. Obvious parallel, I think, to powerful people dragging very unpowerful people around, making them do everything, including give up their lives. They're, they're everything. They're, they're suffering. They get sick. They die. They get ordered around. They get no regard, no empathy. Similar here. Very similar here. These, this is these games of these powerful people. All that said, it should be pretty straightforward that Marjorie probably knows what's happening. The Kettle Blacks aren't subtle. Cersei, everyone knows the Kettle Blacks are associated with Cersei. Everybody knows they advanced because of her promoting them. It's very easy to see that. So Marjorie, not being dumb, can say, hmm, she's trying to get me caught up in this. She's trying to get me to sleep with this dude so, I, so she can turn that around on me. She, Marjorie's just, it's not hard to see that. And so Marjorie can play with that. She can turn that around and act like she's interested. She can be like, oh, where'd you get these scars? And maybe she really does find him slightly handsome. It's just easy for her to, it makes the lie easier to sell. Point being though, I bet she's playing it up. She's probably making Cersei think it's going to work, leading her on because she knows this plan will backfire on Cersei. Of course, it's going to backfire on everyone, really. It's going to actually hurt Marjorie too. Anyway, <laughs> there's only so much Marjorie can do about that. There's that mention of, of the scars, which I just brought up. Now, we know those came from Alayaya when she was mistaken for Tyrion's lover thanks to the tunnel into the brothel scheme. Cersei doesn't ever seem to think about how she was fooled there. I, maybe that just happens, you know, in between books or something, or it's just something that she prefers not to think about. But either way, it, that's relevant because there's this secret passage into Chetayas, which, remember, that's not connected to the Tower of the Hand. The Tower of the Hand is gone, but this secret tunnel should still be there. I don't know if the secret tunnel will matter, but the fact that it still exists and was not discovered in any of this, I mean, obviously Tyrion still knows about it, Varys knows about it, that could come back up. That could be relevant. Speaking of brothels, we get mentioned that Septon Olador was dragged out of one by sparrows and is now out of the running for High Septon because of that, because of that embarrassment. There was actually a TV version of that scene. I don't think it was Septon Olador, but it was some might have been the High Septon at the time. I don't remember. A similar version, doesn't matter. Soon after the High Sparrow arrives, and likewise, we get the High Sparrow next chapter. Now, we've already met him on the road with Brienne, but he wasn't the High Sparrow then. He was just some guy. So technically, we've already met him. But anyway, he's about to become really prominent. HBO made him really prominent too. 
I only say this to remind you all that I am extremely dubious that he'll have a similar fate, even if some of the plot lines have some overlap. The fate, his ending, I think is going to be fairly different, if not substantially different. The sparrows are certainly growing in presence inside the capital. We, we brought up earlier how as the sparrows are moving in, the soldiers are leaving. Cersei's sending them to various places. Now, this isn't necessarily a bad idea. She's just not reckoning with the problem here. She looks down on the sparrows like a lot of powerful people. They tend to underestimate the threat of commoners, even when they're in great numbers like this. We saw, we even see like the Night's Watch do that by underestimating the wildlings in the same regard because it's like, ah, oh, they've got numbers, but so what? They're just so weak and, and helpless, et cetera. It's the same line of thinking because the Night's Watch was thinking, well, a lot of those guys are just common folk. They're not warriors. They're just farmers and, well, maybe not farmers, but herdsmen and hunters and things like that. They're not necessarily warriors. Same goes for the sparrows. These are just regular folk. This does include farmers and, and plowmen and, and just regular people. Another plot that will absolutely positively be very different from the show is that of the Iron Bank. In the show, they're a big supporter of hers and, and not of Stannis. So that's clearly right out for the books because the Iron Bank backs Stannis in the show or in the books and they straight up refuse him in the show. So that's a huge difference there. Here she openly rejects paying them owed monies and that directly leads to them working with Stannis late in A Dance of Dragons. So you can kind of see, easily see where that goes. Of course, the full explanation of this plot, we have no idea and I'm super interested but it's interesting, too, that a lot of this is coming up. These details and these mentions of the Faceless Men and the Iron Bank are popping up all over the place. In the Mercy chapter, we see that Cersei has sent Harry Swift to deal with the Iron Bank after the Iron Bank's already signed up with Stannis, apparently. So they're just still in the dark about that. So apparently, we can piece together that the Iron Bank's association with Stannis still isn't known down in King's Landing by the time of the Mercy chapter. In Fire and Blood, we learned that the, when the Rogare Bank of Lease threatened to rise above even the Iron Bank of Bravos, top Rogare family members died suddenly and suspiciously, but so smoothly that you couldn't be certain it was assassination. But the context that it was assassination is overwhelming, even without proof. The coincidence was just too perfect. The beneficiaries too certain and straightforward. The Faceless Men were suggested even in the history books, which brings us back to the ubiquitous fandom curiosity about the connection between them and the bank, which brings us to another part, a recurring part of Cersei's chapters. Her estimations of how things will play out in other kingdoms are generally overconfident and not at all how her father would judge the situation. For example, look how she's wrong about the Boltons here. Quote, Once the moat was theirs, they would join their strength and clear the Ironmen out of Torrin Square and Deepwood Mott as well. That should win them the allegiance of Ned Stark's remaining bannermen when the time came to march against Lord Stannis. Cersei's confident that the Boltons cleaning out the Iron Board would win them support from their fellow Northmen against Stannis, which is exactly the opposite of what happens. Plenty of Northerners gather with Stannis, some specifically because he helps oust the Ironborn from Deepwood. So Stannis does that. She doesn't think of that possibility, that Stannis will beat the Boltons to the punch. And no one, again, because of the Red Wedding, which we already mentioned, is loving the Boltons because of that. Even the ones who are forced to follow the Boltons are perhaps looking for a way out. So she shrugs off the Golden Company news, which is related to the whole Stannis bit, even though Stannis is not going to get the Golden Company. And it's another reminder of things being different from the show, since the Golden Company was hers in the show, and they did pretty much nothing. But that's in part because they cut the 
character who they have the most association with, obviously, Fagon. And it's interesting how the Golden Company pops up in so many plot lines without having done anything yet because people are wondering about what they're going to do. And everyone makes their own assumptions based on their own particular conspiracies, like Ariane thinking it's going on with Quentin. But Cersei doesn't think... This is where she could have made a very similar realization or very similar, not paranoid, but concerned thought. Arian's like, oh, what if my brother is bringing the, this, the Golden Company? Cersei, if she seizes on the idea that Tyrion would be hiring the Golden Company, she might go all flip out on that and be like, oh, crap. That's a, that's a legitimate possibility. Imagine someone just suggesting that to her. Hey, Cersei, have you considered that the Golden Company is working with Tyrion? <laughs> she might be like, oh, actually... Stop everything. Stop the golden, you know, like <laughs> that would be a, a thing that would eat away at her, I think. But she doesn't think of it. It would be interesting if she had. So we're right back to the danger of the Iron Bank. She just doesn't think of the danger and isn't aware of this walking towards the cliff and of how dangerous they are. It's peculiar to me that just as this is happening, this line comes. Sir Balman proved a great one for suggesting yet another flagon and the queen did not think it prudent to refuse. I could have hired a faceless man to kill Bronn for half of what I've spent on Hippocrats, she reflected when they were gone at last. So that, you could easily just say that's a throwaway line. Yeah, she's just making a joke to herself about how much this costs. But it's literally the only time Cersei ever thinks or says the name faceless man. So, eh, just happens to come up when she's, the one chapter she refuses the Iron Bank right after these Arya chapters about all this reveal about them and all that. Mm, yeah. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't think the Faceless Men are going to kill Cersei because I, I think the Valonqar is going to do that. And I don't really think the Faceless Man is going to also be the Valonqar. I don't see how that would work too well. I mean, it's not impossible, but that's pretty tinfoily. So I'm a bit dubious that, say, you know, a faceless man disguised as Jamie? I mean, what's... Eh, I yeah, I mean, about that's that. where it gets into people, I think, having theories about Arya. Yeah, I, I to agree. To be fair, you know. And I do think that I've certainly brought that up myself, that Arya could be a, a person that could maybe come for Cersei, but I don't think she'll be able to kill... She'll do it that... that but it's possible. We got to leave that door open, so to speak, as a possibility. But I think it might be more like a Varus-type situation where they would rather have her in charge mucking things up, like undermine the power of her house elsewhere. But by having her in charge, she's screwing so many things up on her own. Assassination is not the only tool available here. Not always the best way to overthrow a regime. After all, killing Cersei is not going to overthrow Tommen. Tommen's the king. That might be where this all works. That might be how where these theories converge. Now, I don't think Arya will kill Tommen, but... That's kind of a dark thought. It, it's possible. I mean, I think we think Tyene's going to kill yes, Tommen. I agree. I think Tyene is far more likely to kill Tommen. So that's not a faceless man either. But there's still Marcella as well. And there's still other people. And it's also no coincidence, perhaps, that one, one sentence after the mention of the faceless man in her mind, she's with Tommen. And then one sentence after that, she's noticing the three black cats and thinking how they're a bad omen. So within a span of about three sentences, she names the faceless men, thinks of Tommen and the bad luck of black cats that she's just gotten. And of course, cats, hello, we think of Arya. Cat, she just became cat of the canals and she's skin changing into cats. And of course, 
Even Cersei's aware of the tale of poor Princess Rhaenys and her black cats. And Arya used to catch them. And Arya specifically chased that cat into the tunnels, which is how she found the tunnels and Varys and Illyrio and all that. <laughs> and she just so happens to, in Cat of the Canals, which, you know, obviously we haven't got to yet, she's going to befriend a cat that reminds her of this cat because it's missing an ear. <laughs> so it's just really, there's a ton of subtext connecting the Faceless Men and the Red Keep, and Arya, and these plot points, and I don't know exactly how they all connect, but you can see, I think, where I'm coming from with all this, that there's some sort of alignment, some sort of convergence of these things. Anyway, the, the hits keep on coming in this one. Look at all the things we've covered on this chapter already, and we haven't even brought up this, perhaps the most important thing, which is Cersei not only learning the Valonqar prophecy on the same day she's expecting to be betrothed to Rhaegar, but we find out that Tywin was planning this for four years, telling her in secret. I don't think even Jamie ever knew about this. I mean, she knew he knew maybe of the plan that Tywin wanted to marry Rhaegar to Cersei, but he didn't necessarily know of this secret plan that was built up for four years and that it started this early. So, for example, we get that notation of... of Cersei drawing Alysanne and Jaehaerys, telling Jaime it's Alysanne and Jaehaerys, but it's her and Rhaegar. So that's a pretty big deal. This is some seriously deep lore here. She's 10 years old at the tourney of Lannisport celebrating the birth of Viserys. And well, let's throw this all together. This quote covers so much, including... Black cats brought ill luck as Rhaegar's little girl had discovered in this very castle. She would have been my daughter if the Mad King had not played his cruel jape on father. It had to have been madness that led Ares to refuse Lord Tywin's daughter and take his son instead, whilst marrying his own son to a feeble Dornish princess with black eyes and a flat chest. Well, remember this is pre-Duskendale, so there's no defiance of Duskendale here. So he's not as bad as he will be. But he's been through a lot. His, his mind has been slipping. He's had trauma, and, this, and not just in his past, but recently because he and Rayella experienced a lot of stillbirths, a lot of, of children that lived very briefly or not at all. And, you know, even for an awful person like Ares, we could feel sympathy for that and at least attribute it to perhaps part of his madness. So Viserys living after so many stillbirths is maybe... He doesn't want to mess with, he doesn't want to jinx it, right? Potentially, because the guy's pretty superstitious and not all together there. So maybe it was prophecy, though. I wonder about that. We have so many parallels between Ares and Cersei. Cersei being driven by prophecy, the Valonqar, well, was there something driving Ares? Was, is that why he was very particular about these marriages? Maybe, maybe, but there's also political reasons that seem straightforward. So it could be both but we don't have to have the supernatural to explain it, even though I suspect there is some of that. Here's what Nina writes. This is a good breakdown of, of the politics here. After almost two decades of having Tywin in his hand, Ares had grown hateful, suspicious, and fearful of Tywin. We know that much pretty clearly, right? Ares was specifically afraid that Rhaegar, married to Cersei, would take advantage of Tywin's wealth and power to overthrow his own father. That's a faction Ares doesn't want to see forming. That's a reasonable consideration. Not that it's necessary what, would have gonna, what was going to happen, but from a paranoid person's mindset, it makes sense to avoid that sort of creating that sort of power that could overthrow you. Ares also clearly wanted a Valyrian 
blooded bride for his son. He had tried and failed for years to father another living child with Rayella and specifically commanded Stefan Baratheon to go to Volantis or go to the nine free cities and find a Valyrian blooded woman that he can, that Rhaegar could marry. Setting that aside and their failure maybe was on purpose, um, which gets us back into prophecy and, and other potential reasons around that. But again, could just be politics. But once both of these failed, Ares was left with, basically, Elia was the only option that would satisfy both of his needs, which was someone related to the Targaryens, which she was because of Prince Daenerys that married Maron Martell several generations back. So the Dornish royal family does have the Targaryen blood. So that box is checked, but also someone who isn't really powerful. The Dornish aren't super powerful. So Rhaegar marrying Sunspear doesn't create nearly the sort of threat that Rhaegar marrying Casterly Rock does from his perspective. Cersei, of course, has her all, her, has much different takes on it all because she has much different information. And well, here's where we get a quote. Also, I just want to say it's it's a, it is really weird to me that they just didn't try sending anyone else to the free cities. Yeah. <laughs> like, maybe try one more time. Anyways, uh, moving on Good to the point. quote. Uh, the memory of the rejection still rankled even after all these years. Many a night she had watched Prince Rhaegar in the hall playing his silver-stringed harp with those long, elegant fingers of his. Mm. <laughs> I guess you like him, huh? <laughs> had any man ever been so beautiful? Mm. He was more than a man, though. His blood was the blood of old Valyria, the blood of dragons and gods. When she was just a little girl, her father had promised her that she would marry Rhaegar. She could not have been more than six or seven. Never speak of it, child, he had told her, smiling his secret smile that only Cersei ever saw. Not until his grace agrees to the betrothal. It must remain our secret for now. Another great theory from Nina here that I agree with, or at least strongly suspect, she's, she brings up the possibility that this is a bit of a, a mystery night situation where the people running the tournament had someone they wanted to go far in the tournament. They wanted Rhaegar to do well. It's, it's quietly mentioned that Rhaegar beat all of Tywin's brothers and brothers-in-law and the knights of his household, like as if sure is a coincidence, sure is convenient that that's who Rhaegar was paired up against and not knights from other regions that might have beaten him. Mm. Now, Rhaegar was talented. He won other tournaments later on his own, probably. Like he probably didn't, like people like Barris and Selmy don't remember losing on purpose to him, for example. And that would be something that probably stands out in their memories if they had been. But this was when Rhaegar was 17. He was newly knighted. This isn't necessarily when he's uh, at his best. So, and, and Nina suggests that Ares needed to be in a good mood. You want, if you're going to broach the subject of marriage, it make, it, having Ares be in good spirits is, makes sense. You don't want him to be angry or he's not going to agree to this marriage. So having him in a good mood matters. Having Rhaegar do really well in the tournament would help with that, according to him. But I guess Tywin didn't weigh all the factors properly. He probably wasn't thinking of Ares' paranoia and of creating this power block. And maybe Rhaegar doing well in the tournament wasn't what Ares wanted because he's threatened by his son. But we don't know that he was threatened by his son that early on. Anyway, so many fine jousters that specifically allied to Tywin. 
and that are in his family. You, you can see where this theory might fit really well. Rhaegard is suspiciously doing well, but it's a great, part of what makes it a great plot if it really happened is that, well, Rhaegar is a pretty good joust or at least turned into one. So it, it feels like it could be authentic. Funny too, that the secret smile from Tywin, that's really interesting. I mean, was he still showing the secret smile to her later? I mean, Tyrion was born by this. Tyrion was around four years old when the court is out there for this celebration of Viserys. So Joanna's been passed for a little while. Supposedly Tywin wasn't smiling anymore after Joanna's death, though. So was this something that he was occasionally smiling about? Was this something that Kevin and Tyrion and Jamie didn't see? I mean, Cersei, it sounds like that's exactly what happened. She says the secret smile that only Cersei ever saw. That's a really interesting insight into Tywin's personality that we didn't have before because he's been, we, we, we hear that he's, he was joyless after Joanna's death and then he never smiled, but apparently he did smile at least about this or to her. Now, but did that fall off? Did Tywin stop with the secret smiling? Did he think less of his own daughter when Ares rejected her? I wonder about that. Was he bitter about that? And did he take some of it out on her sort of subconsciously or indirectly? It's entirely possible. Cersei doesn't credit that, but she wouldn't necessarily see it or know it. So that's really interesting too. So there's a lot of interesting extra insight into Tywin's personality here that would have maybe been interesting to, to have considered very early on as an aspect to him that's maybe hidden Maybe he has a different attitude towards certain women. Who knows? So even though he hasn't been introduced, a lot of this Rhaegar setup is for his son, Aegon VI, a.k.a. Young Griff. May or may not be his son, but it doesn't matter for purposes like this because if people believe that's his son, well, when we get lines like this, quote, They cheered father twice as loudly as they cheered the king, the queen recalled, but only half as loudly as they cheered Prince Rhaegar. Sure, it's more evidence of Tywin's popularity beyond Ares's, a major background story, and how popular Rhaegar was is important too. But this is a reminder of how popular Rhaegar's son will be. People are going to be very predisposed towards liking the son of a man as popular as Rhaegar was. The fandom is iffy on Rhaegar in general because we're not sure what his deal with, was with prophecy and why did he embarrass his wife at the tournament like that? What's up with Lyanna and... and chasing her down and going to the Tower Joy and Jon Snow. There's just a lot of unknowns, but in world, so we can get the wrong impression. Sometimes our opinion can drift off a little, but we got to remember in world, he was massively popular. So the reader's attitude towards Rhaegar and the community is different than the in world attitude towards him. And we got to keep that straight. They don't have the same troubling questions we do, the same wonders that we do. They just don't know what happened. Also, they have different values than we do. Joe notes that this line, the Knight of Flowers was no sort of man for any boy to emulate, which is Cer Cersei being incredibly prejudiced there. Of course, she's not thinking of, of his orientation there. She has no idea. But he's a really good knight. I mean, he's pretty honorable. I mean, he's maybe he's got that temper problem, perhaps. But it's all things considered, he's skilled. He's fairly honorable. He works hard. He's disciplined for the most part. Yeah, that is someone to emulate in terms of Westerosi knighthood and values. That's pretty good. I mean, <laughs> so Cersei just is, sees his family 
and who he is and his associations and thinks that's why you don't want to emulate him because of who he's associated with, not because of his actual qualities. So there's so many things that are getting told. Here's a little interesting parallel to Cat of the Canals again, which somehow keeps coming up, even though Arya and Cersei don't have a lot in common. Apparently, there's lots of parallel themes here. She's dismissing so many things that Kyburn and other counselors tell her. She doesn't even, she definitely doesn't subscribe to the notion that knowledge is power. Meanwhile, Arya is repeatedly giving seemingly trivial information as Cat of the Canals and being told, this is good to know. It's a very different school of thought as to the power of information. And Cersei's a ruler. She should be taking in all of this. She just, she's just a little bit lazy, I think. She's like, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to deal with that. Don't, it might be a defense mechanism. Like she's so anxious about so many things. It's like, the last thing I need is another thing to be anxious and paranoid about. <laughs> but this is subconscious. She doesn't realize that she's undermining herself by that. We have the declaration that her washerwomen are shrinking her clothes and Tana jumps in to say, hey, maybe instead of whipping them, just take the deduct the cost from their account. And so she's like, hey, that's a good idea. It makes me seem a little kinder. It's a more elegant solution. And of course, this is blindness, right? Cersei is getting older and drinking a lot. That's why she's, her dresses don't fit. This is pretty straightforward. But, ooh, ooh, I got a theory here. Tana, again, showing extreme cleverness. What happens when her servants, Cersei's servants, go into huge debt for having to pay for these fancy dresses? Well, that makes them way more vulnerable to being bribed, right? So I think Tana's setting up Cersei's servants to be more uh, open to taking money because Cersei's about to put them in a very difficult financial situation. Really smooth. Another example of a one-liner that could easily go past, easily be dis, uh, dismissed or just not noticed as important, or the full notice or the full importance being not seen. Well, that's another thing we could talk about that a lot. Just this one line, but it reminds us again of this thing we brought up about how the small folk, the servants, get these huge punishments for the games that their bosses are playing. We mentioned Snell a few times. The stable boy is mentioned here as well as the servants, the one who gets whipped for the saddle strap that breaks for Lady Felice. Quite obviously, that saddle strap could have been tempered with by Braun or somebody or one of Braun's men that is, was trying to pull off this exact maneuver. So, yeah, there's just this theme of, of this might be powerful people playing games, but there's always some commoner to blame on it whether it's the washerwomen, the puppeteers, whether it's the stable boys, whether it's anyone, whether it's the servants in Fire and Blood that we mentioned associated with Sarah. There's no end to it. Nina points out that Cersei for once correctly assumes Marjorie is behind the suggestion for Tommen to sit the Iron Throne. It makes sense for Marjorie to make, to push that, for Tommen to, you know, clear up his rights to be separated from his mother's authority as much as possible, not just personally, but politically. They want Tommen to understand that he's the one with the royal authority. He, the regent is a temporary thing. They're probably worried about Cersei trying to hold power when Tommen gets older and trying to maintain that. And they're thinking ahead and maybe curbing that before it gets started. You can see the background here, the behind-the-scenes battle for the king that's going on. Another Ares parallel, we seems like we have these constantly with Cersei. 
And well, they're not letting up just yet. This is a smaller one, but nonetheless pretty clear when you find it. Cersei and Aerys both looked to appoint a master at arms to counter the ambitions of a powerful noble family. For example, not only then we have Cersei turning down Loras for the role and considers a Dornishman. Meanwhile, Tywin was trying to bring his brother Tygit to be the Red Keep's master at arms, but Aerys said no and made it Sir Willem Derry who was brother of Jonathan Derry, the Kingsguard knight that was standing guard with Jamie that one time when Rayella was being raped. And of course, Sir Willem Derry is the loyalist that flees with Viserys and Danny that Danny has such fond memories of. Wonder, uh, Nina wonders whether Jamie's report on the city walls and gates is any foreshadowing. She says that Jamie points out that his forces would likely come through the Mudgate, which Jamie notes took a beating from Stannis's men and, and their battering rams. Um, but he says, maybe, he also points out that it's, the problem isn't the gates, but the, maybe the Tyrells on the inside. And well, maybe that's a nod that the Tyrells will, or that the population will open the gates on their own to let Aegon in because they would happily be rid of the Lannisters. The issue of the ward at Rosby, another small part of this chapter that might be pretty relevant. Nina believes that this ward is none other than Olivar Frey and has a lot of evidence for it that I find compelling. Olivar's mother, Bethany Rosby, is the only other known Rosby of modern times, it seems. Remember, of course, all this is starting because of Giles. Lord Giles doesn't have his own heir. Rosby lands are really rich, and later Giles is going to die, even, even as Cersei is like, oh, he's going to live for a while, but he dies by the end of the book. <laughs> and, well, Oliver's got a really low place in the Frey succession. He's Walder's 18th son, fourth by Bethany Rosby alone. Uh, so it may have been the case that Giles was planning on naming him his heir even before any of this, but this would explain why Oliver was merely Rob's squire and had not been knighted yet. At the start of A Game of Thrones, Giles, always accounted as weak and sickly, could hardly have trained Oliver himself, right? Someone else would have had to be there. Someone else would have had to knight him. Giles wasn't going to knight him. Oliver specifically asked to stay with Rob, even when the phrase left Rob at the crag, but Sir Ryman took him back to the twins. When Rob and Catelyn arrived for the Red Wedding, Ryman explained that Oliver was gone, gone from the castles, duty. An explanation that neither Catelyn nor Rob bought and neither did the readers because Perwin was also sent away. It's, you know, it's this, it, this was the whole, why are none of the good phrase here for the Red Wedding? <laughs> What's going on here? We do hear of Perwin again in this book. He'll be at the Siege of Riverrun, but we never hear of Oliver again. So he's also kind of missing. Felice refers to the ward as a, quote, ill-born wretch. So there's this effort to not name whoever this ward, this, this potential heir is, which Nina suggests is from the phrase reputation. A lot of people look down on them now because of what they did, because of the Red Wedding, right? Pretty straightforward. Murderers, guest right breakers, all that. That's, that's not good uh, to have said about you. Felice also notes that the ward will, quote, bake off with Rosby's gold, a suggestion that she knows the ward may have some claim to Rosby, which of course Olivar does because he is, his mother was of Rosby. The real kicker of this being Olivar Frey is that he is expressing the very respect for guest right that the other Freys don't. When Felice Stokeworth is fleeing to King's Landing, she stops off at Rosby and says, hey, can I take shelter here? And they say, no, we're not giving you guest right. We're not letting you in. And well, 
the reason he would refuse her is because the Stokeworths, especially Felice, is a very known ally of the Lannisters. And if Olivar is repudiating his family's act, he wouldn't be friendly with Lannisters since it was a Lannister Frey operation. So it's a, a lot of circumstantial evidence, but it's pretty compelling. And we definitely don't have other good candidates. So unless it's just someone we haven't heard of at all, I like that theory a lot. So keep an eye on that one. You may be ahead of the game by hearing that theory. Uh, also, and something I should have mentioned with regards to Davos is the whole fake head and hands thing is a nice little parallel to the fake out or not fake out with Gregor's head being sent to Dorne. <laughs> Funny too about Cersei's comment about Loras and, and what, she, what he wants to be and, and how she notices how squires get really close with their knights. <laughs> she thinks of Loras and Renly, but she doesn't realize how, why they got quite so close as they did. She has no idea about that relationship. She thinks it was just a knight and squire getting close. We get the mention of Jalabar Joe in this chapter. She thinks about him briefly. And I think that's just a nice way to set up the fact that the cinnamon wind is in Sam's chapter. And, you know, George is just reminding us that the Summer Islanders are a thing. They exist. Hey, folks, there's a Cersei chapter every week for the rest of Valar Reredus. We get Cersei every single week. That's pretty cool. Stefan B. points out not only the shrunken dresses is a, an awful point of Cersei's personality, but it's a parallel to Robert and the breastplate stretcher. But there's no Ned around to give tough love about, hey, man, you're just gaining weight. But it's also the same reason for both of them, probably. Robert just drank a lot, and that was a major reason for him gaining weight. And, well, <laughs> same with Cersei. She just isn't honest with herself about it, nor have a Ned to, to spell it out. She's just as, as not honest with yourself with herself as Robert was. It's just that Robert accepted it when someone was blunt about it, when Cersei would have been like, off with his head. <laughs> How dare you, you know? Not that I'm defending Robert. <laughs> He's just, <laughs> he at least had the grace to laugh at his own, laugh at himself. Yeah, I'll give him one point for that. Archmaester Rennie points out, if Jamie learns she's been into other boys all the way back when she was six, I mean, that's not Cersei's fault. I mean, it's pretty normal to like boys other than your own twin brother, right? <laughs> but still, Jamie has this very idealized image of their relationship that's been falling apart, starting with the end of A Storm of Swords and really picking up speed in this book. Yeah, it's so funny that... You know, Cersei calls Malara a greedy little schemer for being into Jamie, And then Cersei's the one fantasizing about the future king of the realm. Yeah, like not being loyal to Jamie. Like, I want Rhaegar and you can't have Jamie. Like, <laughs> it's like, that is real selfish. Lady Leaf Underhill from Flick points out that, wait, Joffrey had a whipping boy? Because it's the same whipping boy that, was, that Tommen has. It was also Joffrey's whipping boy. It's like, what good would that have done? Why would that have ever made? <laughs> like, Joffrey's not going to care if some kid gets whipped on his behalf. It's like, yeah, he would probably like that. He'd be like, yeah, whip that kid. I'm going to do bad things to make him get whipped. Like That <laughs> kid must have been so happy when Joffrey died. Oh, God, yeah. Speaking, I mean, is another example of some poor servant kid that just, like, the whole concept of a whipping boy is unreal, right? Like, a... Poor common boy that takes the punishments of a royal kid? Like, what? 
How is that a thing? But it's not Westerosi only. That was a real thing in the real world that George is borrowing. It's just nuts though, isn't it? Like, what? Yeah. <laughs> at least someone like Tom and it, it works to some extent. It yeah, would discourage true. him. Like, it shows that, hey, this is a good future king maybe because he cares that this kid is being whipped. Yeah, it's at least a good, yeah, he's at least it's got like some an arbiter. sensitivity. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. It's like a bellwether of his person. He's like, at least this kid isn't awful. He has some sympathy and he's he's a king and he still has sympathy for common kids. That that is that does say a lot, even though he's a lot of other things maybe say he won't be a good king, like the fact that he'll die before he can get there. But <laughs> I would prefer Tom and to Joffrey a billion times out of a billion. So, you know. <laughs> and with that, we move on. Another incredible Cersei chapter that we covered so much. There's probably things we we missed though, because it's just so, so much, especially when it's all said and done. We come back to this chapter and I'm like, oh yeah, that was foreshadowing for this. Yeah, we didn't catch that. We didn't know what was coming. But we'll come back some other day when there are more books. Brienne 5. The gang meets Septon Maribald, aka the one with the broken man speech. This chapter, I have no lead in. We're just going straight to the opening quote. It was L. Hunt who insisted they take the heads. No, Brienne isn't proud of the killing she did, which speaks well of her. It was something that had to be done, not something she glories in. She doesn't want to bring back the heads of her enemies as trophies the way Clarence Crabbe did at the Whispers, right? So there's a little bit of a nod to that legend. She's rejecting that notion. She's no Clarence Crabbe. She's Galadon of Morn, if anyone. So these men clearly deserve to die for their crimes, but Brienne isn't taking pleasure in killing them. It was justice. Justice needed to be done, but killing is not something you should take pleasure in. Randall Tarley's incredulous when he hears the news because he obviously wouldn't have expected a woman to have such success. But instead of changing his mind or saying maybe I was wrong, he just digs in deeper. He switches to being results-oriented. Did she find Sansa? No? Okay, then it was a failure. <laughs> uh, oh, there was only three of them? Oh, they were rats. They were starving and not well-armed. They're just outlaws. Oh, it was the sword, right? He just not. He will not accept this result without prevaricating, without but this, but that. And he's like, did you enjoy it? And she's like, no. <laughs> And then she's like, okay, so you had your fun time to go home and let the men get back to it. But she's like, no, sir, I've got my letter. I've got my quest. But there's this huge irony in the fact that Tarly scoffs at the idea of Brienne being able to find Clegane and the Red Priest and Stoneheart. She's like, well, I couldn't find them. How are you going to find them? Well, she's going to find the real Sandor because uh, they've been talking about Rorge without knowing it. And of course, she's not going to know she found the real Sandor at the Quiet Isle, but she will find him. And she's also going to kill the, re the one masquerading as the Hound, the one they're talking about, Rorge. And she will be brought before Thoros and Stormheart. She's going to find all these people that he scoffs at. Not only is she going to, it would be one thing if she just found one of them, but she's going to find them all. <laughs> and not that long from now. When Brienne refuses the offer of, you know, I'll put you back on a ship and send you back to your father. He gets even more huffy. It's, it's, it's almost incredible that he doesn't, that he expects her to accept this offer. It just shows just how deeply rooted his misogyny is that he thinks she's thinking some of these same things like, oh, surely you're just ready to go home now. Like, no, of course she's not. Like, where would you get that idea? It's not even close to true. She's 
has had zero thoughts at any point of going home. So Heil steps up to his credit a little bit here and brings up that, you know, kind of defends her. And it's kind of funny because he's like, oh, it was just the sword. The sword is fast. It's like, well, Randall, what about you? You wield a Valyrian steel blade. Should we say that you're not really that fast? It's just your sword? (laughs) He doesn't realize how this argument works against him too. And of course, he just, just more cruelty comes out. Look at this line. It's so brutal. It is said your father is a good man. If so, I pity him. Some men are blessed with sons, some with daughters. No man deserves to be cursed with such as you. Live or die, Lady Brienne. Do not return to Maidenpool whilst I rule here. So obviously this is cruel and intentionally so. It's, it's reeks of his own insecurities. Joe Buckley aptly points out this might be some projection of him thinking about Sam, like no one deserves a son like that. No one deserves a daughter like you, that kind of thing. He's kind of comparing them a little bit, maybe even though they're not very similar in terms of their own personality, in terms of his viewpoints of what an ideal son or daughter is like. Neither of them fit. They're both extreme opposite ends of that. He may even be jealous of Selwyn. This is a daughter who's far more of a warrior than Sam. (laughs) And maybe that bothers him a lot that he's seeing the extreme end of that. And he, he definitely, from his own perspective, thinks that he didn't deserve to be cursed with Sam. So yeah, I do think there's some projection here. There may be a little bit of an element of undermining the Lannisters though, too. Certainly there's the raging misogyny, the classism, Randall just being a terrible person in general. That's on top of it all. But if we consider that he's a very strong candidate to switch to young Griff to egg on the sixth side, if he's already thinking about that, which he probably is, then he doesn't want Brienne to find Sansa. He doesn't want someone who's working for the king to succeed because he doesn't want this king to succeed. He wants his claimant who hasn't arrived on the scene yet. So undermining the Lannisters in this regard, it might be, that might be part of it. Interesting too, that coming off a Cersei chapter where she's bringing up her gender and how that's a big role, it's far more present here, but Brienne doesn't lament that. She's just so used to it. It's just day to day. She... It's just part of who she is now. It's like, well, yep, another day, another person looking down on me. She's extremely used to it, which is why she trusts almost nobody. It's part of that. It's, it's very, these are very related concepts, very related aspects of, of her life. Now let's talk about Heil Hunt for a minute. He looks better than he did at first. He stands up for Brienne. He loses his job in the process. Should we praise him for it? A little, but don't be fooled. Brienne doesn't think of it on these terms like Sansa does, but it's the same situation, which is that he wants her claim. He is, she is suspicious of him, and this is what she thinks. Quote. Golden land, that's what he sees in this. I mean to save the girl, not sell her. I swore a vow. I don't recall that I did. So she's right. She's right that he's in this for the money, mostly, but she's wrong a little bit. She doesn't go quite far enough. It's that... She, uh, he wants to marry her to get Tarth. She's the heir to Tarth. Something that she doesn't really think about that often. That's a hell of a lot better than some money. <laughs> yeah. And this isn't some idle theory. She admits, he admits this later. He brings it up. He's like, yeah, I want to marry you. Uh, it just doesn't come up in this chapter. So she doesn't think, realize it's, she's right, but she's more right than even she realizes. So yeah, it's about her claim. Just like it was with Sansa, just like it is with these other people. A woman, with a title to a castle is an 
open opportunity for some man to come in, marry them, and to rule that castle in her name. Lady, uh, Lady Hornwood, hello, Ramsey, right? That's a similar example. Lady Dustin chooses not to get remarried because of that whole concept. So she was, she's savvy to that whole game. When Brienne finally gets uh, a rest, when she's asleep, she has a rough night. She's bad dreams, dreaming, dreaming about people she killed, which reminds us that she has, you know, morals. <laughs> she's an ethical person. She does not glory in killing. It's proven through her own psyche rather than just her, her words. She dreams of those who have wronged her, like Randall Tarley, Red Ronnet, but dreaming about Nimble Dick, that he might come kill her, that is guilt. He was not a dangerous man in the sense that if they crossed swords, there'd be any chance or any wonder about who would win. Bran would make quick work of Nimble Dick. Nimble Dick would not try to fight her. If he was going to betray her, it would have been in some sneaky way. And remember, the, when she gets back to the stinking goose, the innkeeper is like, what happened? Did he rape you? Did he try to rob you? Like, they were expecting something bad to happen because they knew the man. Still, even with that, she feels guilty. She led him, led him to a place, or he led her, but on her guidance with her money that got him killed. Probably not her responsibility, and the reason, definitely not her responsibility after all. He conned those guys. He Maybe he didn't deserve death for it, but he did deserve whatever punishment befits a con man. I don't know exactly what that is. So it's an interesting part of her personality that she's taking on this guilt, even though she has arguably very little responsibility, if none, for this. This kind of person she is. I could have done more. I could have done more. That's, that's how knights, a good knight thinks. Like, where's my responsibility? Always thinking of your responsibility, not your rights, not your glory, not your benefits. Nina writes another sad, almost... Almost sad moment for Brienne. She not only sees the Titan's daughter, which just got back from depositing Arya and Bravos, but she considers getting on it only reject buying passage aboard the Sea Strider, which would have taken her to Gulltown, where she could have heard of Elaine Stone. When and then Manderly's about to reveal his Rickon plan to Davos up in White Harbor if she had gone there. Well, anyway. This won't be the last we hear about Nymeria's wolf pack. Another little aside note from this chapter not including Arya's dreams of them, we hear about them in other places. Nymeria is obviously taking after both her namesake, Princess Nymeria, in ruling a, a land full of rivers, kind of like uh, the Rhine was, but just ruling her pack and leading them around and uh, being clearly in charge and unchallenged for that rule because of her really strong personality. The wolf has gone from an exile without prospects to a leader of many in a dominant power. That's exactly what Queen Nymeria was. She was in exile, but regained her power in a new land in part because of her great skills and uh, maybe a little bit of luck thrown in. Nymeria has the same. And certainly circumstances, Nymeria the wolf didn't set out to be the wolf queen of the Riverlands, <laughs> but that's what's happening. Making the best of a bad situation. So, we have reached the Broken Man speech, one of the most important, beautiful parts of the entire series that hits out at multiple themes, not just of Feast for Crows, but of the larger message of A Song of Ice and Fire. Obviously, there's lots of messages, lots of themes. It's a gigantic series, so there isn't just one or two messages, but being anti-war is so a big a part of this. And this speech is perhaps the most direct stare at the camera moment, almost fourth wall breaking of that, where it's just look at the horrors of war in great detail from someone who has experienced it over and over, seen it firsthand, not just being in it, but seeing the aftermath, dealing with the people, helping them recover, 
for 40 years, this guy's been doing that. It's one of the best collections of good characters in one place we ever may see, too, That's as, a, as an aside. Maribald, Brienne, Podrick. Man, now you got to love that. These are some of the best characters, like purity of goodness. It's some real grounding for us amidst all this awfulness, all these schemers, all these people letting, like we just got through talking about how so many poor commoners just get absolutely the brunt of things they had nothing to do with because of the Games of Thrones being played around them and they're getting caught in the gears and thrown to the wolves and just no one cares about them. And this is the, finally, we get someone that's really, really cares about it, that's not just cares about it, but has devoted their whole life to fighting back with goodness. We said in earlier Brienne chapters, this is a great point by Joe, she needs to see that there is good in the world so that it's not just her own motivation, that her own goodness is, is not this one shining light. She needs to have other good in the world. She needs to see these examples to know that it's, it's out there, to know that there's things worth fighting for. And what better example is there than Maribald? I mean, there may be equivalently good examples, but better examples, I just it's just so powerful. She especially needs to meet him after a chapter where she's feeling or a moment where she's feeling guilty about killing and how you get to see the other side of that, how the world can be made good, how good deeds can be done through non-combat, through nurturing, through growth rather than death and control. Septon Maribald has sort of taken over what the Brotherhood Without Banners was doing in A Clash of Kings and A Storm of Swords, Nina writes, where the Brotherhood, or what remains of it, it was... They're now focused on acts of vengeance, but before they were going around feeding the small folk. That was their main goal, was taking care of the people who were left aside by these wars, the victims, the firsthand victims of the, ra the raiding and reaving campaigns within the Riverlands. There's a tiny bit of dunkness to Maribald here. Obviously, Maribald's not a warrior, but he's a big guy, or, I mean, he was a warrior, maybe. But an illiterate man like Dunk, who takes his role as defender of the small folk very seriously, wandering Westeros with only the hedges and a handful of holdfast to rely on for guaranteed shelter. That's all very much up Dunk's alley. And Brienne's too, as an ancestor of him, but we get to see it through Maribald instead of through uh, that, you know, bloodline, whatever, for lack of a better term. But it's really sad too. Again, we talked about how Brienne is, for good reasons, <laughs> finds it hard to trust people. At first, she even doesn't trust Maribald because she's like, well, this guy knows all the back roads and he could easily lead us into an ambush. Of course, that line of thinking falls off pretty quickly as she gets to know him. But man, it really sinks in just how Brienne is forced to have so little trust in people, even him, because of what the world is to her and how the world is not so unkind to her and, and her differences. It's all a huge parallel, the kind that looks like an opposite rather than a match in many ways, though. What I mean here, though, is not just comparing him to the Brother Without Banners, but the High Sparrow versus Septon Maribald. Brutal dogma, power, and authority compared to open interpretations of the Seven, the cobbler above. He's like, yeah, they're just aspects of the Seven. He basically allows you to just invent your own it's like choose your own deity within the seven. I don't think the High Sparrow would be necessarily down with that. Certainly not these live and let live attitudes. This generosity, well, that may be. The, Septon, uh, the High Sparrow has sold all their stuff to pay for the commoner. So they do have some overlap, but 
Septon Maribald is, is not a violent man, and the High Sparrow is extremely so. Though we explored an exception in the last Brienne chapter to the rule espoused by Jorah Mormont that the common people just want to be left alone and don't care much who sits at the Iron Throne, here we have a deeper and fuller exploration of that overwhelmingly powerful theme, one that's throughout all of A Song of Ice and Fire. It's also going to be expanded on at the Quiet Isle. But here, the human cost of these wars is explored more so than it was for Danny or Arya or Quentin Martell, even though they got to see a lot of firsthand things because they've all had these harsh educations about the realities of war, but Septon Maribald had the same. He had more of it. He had it longer ago. He's been living with it longer. He said he last time he wore shoes was before Robert's Rebellion. That's at least one war he's seen, but then we got the current War of Five Kings, and he fought in the War of Nine Penny Kings too. So yeah, those characters I just mentioned have seen some awful things, but Septon Maribald's seen way more and he's had a lot longer to see the results, to see the aftermath, the recovery period. 40 years of that. More time to think and reflect and understand and get to know and deal with it hands-on. I mean, what have we told you more than a few times about the Riverlands? It's always a hit hard in war because it's in the middle. It borders every kingdom except Dorne. Yep, the Iron Islands, the North, the Vale, the West, the Reach, the Crownlands. Yeah, the Stormlands it touches on too. So there's always someone touching on their borders. And this guy's been wandering this war-torn region off and on, well, off and on being the war-torn part. He's been wandering it straight for, for 40 years and seeing everything, seeing all this, seeing it play out over these decades. So with this, with him, he's not just a great guy. It's not just his interactions with the small folk. He's part of the small folk. He is a small folk, right? He's not just a guy who supports them. He's one of them. And so from him, we get the rule, the truth. Instead of common belief, we get the real stories, like this quote here. The singers love to sing of good men forced to go outside the law to fight some wicked lord. But most outlaws are more like this ravening hound than they are the lightning lord. We talk a lot about broken men. It was a major theme in A Storm of Swords 2 because they were mostly created by the war. Back in A Game of Thrones, there weren't broken men yet because the wars had just started and it takes the onset, the ongoing, it takes time for broken men to be created by these wars. It's not something that happens overnight. As this chapter goes into excruciating detail on, the process of becoming a broken man is a slow, agonizing transformation. It's too long to quote, but here's the last part. He turns and runs or crawls off afterward over the corpses of the slain or steals away in the black of night and he finds some place to hide. All thought of home is gone by then. And kings and lords and gods mean less to him than a haunch of spoiled meat that will let him live another day or a skin of bad wine that might drown his fear for a few hours. The broken man lives from day to day, from meal to meal, more beast than man. Lady Brienne is not wrong. In times like these, the traveler must beware of broken men and fear them, but he should pity them as well. Yeah, profound silence when Maribald finishes. No kidding, there is, Joe said. And let me tell you another time when there was profound silence related to this speech, the whole speech, not just the list, this last bit that we quoted. It would have been too much to do all of it. Ashea and I have a fond memory of this speech. At Ice and Fire Con a few years ago, there's a sort of a talent show type event where people 
take scenes and perform them or stuff inspired by scenes from the books. Lots of great performances. Songs, we had someone do the, t- the Floppy Fish song, wrote lyrics for it, for example. Fantastic, just an example. But this one was a little different. Each time a performer would finish, the next performer would come from the side of the stage from the next room and walk on. This time, when, and I think it was right after the Floppy Fish performance, no one came up. It just, no one walked on on the stage. But all of a sudden, someone in a robe and a cowl stood up from within the audience. And he pulled his hood back and it was Scad from Davos Fingers. And what does he do? But launch into a performance of the broken man speech. I'm getting slightly choked up thinking about it. He nailed it. He memorized it and acted it out. The guy's a talented actor, by the way, and he proved it here. And let me tell you, the reason, not only did I want to just reference this because Shay and I loved it so much and it was a great fandom moment, but because it had the same result of the book. Total silence after that speech in the book. Total silence in that room during and after the speech. Of course, eventually we erupted into raucous applause, but I've never been in a room where you could hear a pin drop was a truer statement. People were, and I was also on the edge of my seat. Silent, but on the edge of my seat, it was perfect. I'll never forget it. Shout out to Scad from Davos Fingers. Great job, my friend. I bet a lot of y'all, if this is your second reread, are enjoying Brienne's chapters way more than the first time. There's, you, you can see the richness. You can see the buildup. You know what you're getting to, and you can appreciate it more when you see the details leading up to these big moments. It all just means so much more. Amy Blackfire says, great stuff as Easton and Shea. Feast is really growing on me with this reread. Hey, that's kind of what I was trying to say with this second read. It's just such a, it's, it's true. You're, you're, a lot of you are experiencing the same thing that happened in 2006. When it first came out, a lot of people were like, eh. But over time, it grew in esteem because the greatness of it was impossible to deny. It was just kind of hidden at first. The subtlety came out more. And well, a lot of y'all are experiencing that firsthand for yourselves. And it's, it's not just something that people say anymore. Last note for this chapter, Stephanie the Peerless By the way, Stephanie, you are STP in my notes always. (laughs) So she notes that Dog and a Septon similar to Sandor, Gravedigger with the Elder Brother, right? There's a pairing, right? You got Septon has, the Septon Maribald has his big dog. And soon we're going to encounter Elder Brother and and the Gravedigger who is Dog. And he's, and the Elder Brother is a really big man too. So a nice little parallel there. And that is it for Brienne 5. Now, Samwell 3. Cross an ocean to drown in a canal, a.k.a. fire and blood and fever. Joe writes that Sam gets to connect two of our recent chapters. As always, compare him to Brienne's interactions with Randall. Yeah, Randall Tarley and Brienne's chapters obviously has relevance to understanding Sam. And seeing so he's like, damn, this guy was, isn't just bad to Sam. He's kind of just bad to everyone and, and in a lot of different ways. We're also four chapters removed from our latest Aria and Bravos, which to be fair, didn't really show us that much of Bravos. She's going to see a lot of it in her later chapters, but it, she pretty much goes straight to the House of Black and White. It's similar to how Sam took part of a brand chapter to progress his own story without actually using a POV. It's kind of the same thing. Sam is frequently or semi-frequently encountering other characters. He's like the wandering star of the various plot lines. With Arya added in here, and then he also hears about the dragons from Jondo. He talks to Eamon. He's been with John and Stannis and Melisandre, and he's faced the others. He met Bran and Coldhands. He's 
heard prophecies from several of these characters, including Eamon, who I already mentioned. He's going to head to the Citadel where Marwin is going to talk even more about prophecies to him while also in, introducing him to things like glass candles and other fun stuff. All while, oh, deep breath, <gasps> a faceless man and a sand snake are both lurking around in disguise. So there's more plot lines he's touching on. And Euron is coming. Plus, he even managed to nod at Skagos when Rick, where Rickon and Davos are going, not knowing that he's nodding at them. But hey, it's there. What's he going to do next? Hook up with Varys? Play Sybass with Tyrion? Become pen pals with Sansa? Actually, a lot of you were wondering, what's next, Sansa? Because he's <laughs> hooked up with nearly every other Stark kid so far, even when he didn't know it. As this chapter unfolds, you can almost real, see the... Real quick, you're, you're hooked up just... Uh, yeah, Sansa Sam hooking up, yeah. That's and not what I meant. And he's hooked up with almost every other Stark kid so far. <laughs> I'm like, what am I missing in these books? I guess I got to reread again. Subtext is uh, real uh, romantic there, real sexual. <laughs> <laughs> I've got some tinfoil theories going on. So as this chapter unfolds, you can almost see the rest of the series plotted out. Yeah, really, this chapter almost like hits the beats of what... I think some of the overarching themes are going to be the rest of the way. You've got this chapter starting off with warmth fading, ice and snow settling in, death approaching, and then come the dragons. The cold is defeated, but death comes anyway. And the process of this cold seeping in and taking over before its eventual defeat begins fittingly with the loss of light, the flight of the sun, the coming of night. The first line of the chapter is... Sam stood before the window, rocking nervously as he watched the last light of the sun vanish behind a row of sharp-peaked rooftops. Sharp-peaked rooftops. Doesn't that kind of sound like mountains, right? Like, very specifically, peaked, right? (laughs) I think that's how people might feel as the long night. Yeah, right? That line could be (laughs) like books from now, like next book, like middle of the book during the outbreak of winter. Yeah, so it's a really interesting, like, parallel type of word choice there. So yeah, as if they were mountains, of course, the cold emerging from those mountains, of course, Sam knows what that means. We know what that means. We know what comes from the darkness and cold mountains. And we have in this chapter, a man who exists in darkness at all times in Eamon, who of course has no use of his eyes, but it's his dreams that we're focused on. And given his blood and his heritage, well, of course, those dreams are important. Nina writes, this chapter isn't so much one large tragedy as the buildup of several small tragedies. No one suspected that Eamon or expected that Eamon would be dying by the time they got to Bravo, so their ship leaves to Old Town without him because the captain won't have him dying on board. And because they weren't expected to stay in Bravo long, they weren't prepared how to manage their finances while trying to figure out how to get out of Bravo. So it all just kind of spirals out of control. Sam's mostly concerned with keeping Eamon healthy. Darion is not helping. In fact, he's hurting the efforts. He's being selfish, unempathetic, kind of cruel. It's sometimes very heartless, really. Um, And because Bravos is so stressful and Darion's not helping, it just puts more responsibility on Sam. And there's some similarity here with Danny's early life. Well, we mentioned Willem Derry earlier too. And of course she fled with little Viserys and baby Daenerys to Bravos to get away from the Baratheons. But once they got there, he found himself kind of in a spot he's not really capable of handling. Willem Derry was a, a master at arms, as we said. He was loyal. He was brave. But this guy's 
not necessarily a diplomat or a, a guy good at forging alliances. He was really miscast as this everything role to the young Targaryen princelings. He, he wasn't capable of some of it, right? He, he, we talked about how they started to have trouble with money there too, how the servants would run off with their cash and stealing things. As Willem Derry wasn't capable of managing that sort of thing. He wasn't experienced in all these different roles that needed to be filled. He was square peg, round hole, lots of different round holes. He couldn't fill any of them. Same stuff here. Sam is not capable of managing all these different tasks. He's not cut out for a lot of them. And well, that has consequences. It's fun that in her, you know, when Arya shows up, uh, which we'll talk about in a little more detail in a minute, but just this note here that (laughs) she includes the detail of her fake backstory that her father was only in love with her mother. (laughs) It's like, oh yeah, they were, they had a perfect relationship. It reminds me of her insisting to Edric Dane that Ned never loved Ashara. No, she only loved Catelyn. So that's this idealized version of, of mom and dad that a lot of kids have now in, in fiction, real world too. Arya and and Sam's interaction is, is pretty sweet. Uh, but also painful in ways that neither of them can recognize. Arya's defending Sam because, in part because he's a member of the Night's Watch, which she connects with Northern Values and specifically with John. And she, but she doesn't know that this is John's best friend, which would she would be even more protective and curious about him, and might be wanting to like go with him or something. Of course, she wouldn't necessarily want to go to Old Town, but maybe she would. I don't know. But uh, and, and of course, Sam. If she knew, if he knew what she was, that she was a Stark and she could talk about Bran and all this, it's one of those, oh man, if only they knew what the other knows. Very tantalizing and sad. Do you you want to mention uh, what Sean said to us about this? Oh yeah, great point. So Sean, uh, Sean of House Beard is- He's reading along with us. Valar Redis, not Reredis. He hadn't read him before. He's he's been sending us little chapter notes on his thoughts and, and he wrote, Gosh, so Sam has run into, you know, Sam meets this person, this person. What's he going to do? Meet our, oh. And like two, like 10 minutes later, he's like, well, there it is. <laughs> so he, was, he, saw, he sort of saw it coming without seeing it coming. Important note here that this is where we get reminded that the horn, that Sam brought the broken horn with him and that he didn't sell it for passage. Well, he hasn't, he hasn't sold anything for passage yet. That'll be... In between chapters, Sam meets John Doe, and then the beginning of the next chapter, they're already at sea, and he thinks of how they arranged for that. Bunch of people very satisfied to see Sam punch Darian. You know, it's not like, yay, violence, but man, did that kid deserve a punch in the face. You know, this isn't, he maybe didn't deserve to be killed by Arya, that's another topic, but he did perhaps deserve a punch to the face. <laughs> maybe a couple. Well, and he got a couple. <laughs> Talk more about Darian's death from Arya's perspective in her chapter, because it, it becomes a major topic. The faceless men bring it up too. But it does get foreshadowed here, kind of darkly by Sam a bit, when Sam is feeling, oh, I shouldn't think badly of him. Maybe, quote, He could be dead, lying in some alley in a pool of blood, or floating face down in one of the canals. Yeah, that's pretty much exactly what happens, that second one, the latter floating face down in one of the canals. So, you know, yeah, whoops. When Arya shows up, okay, so on a reread, knowing who it is right away, knowing it's coming, that's fun, right? It's a totally different thing. You're like, oh, here it comes, here she comes. But the first time you're like, wait, who is this? Even though the way she speaks kind of gives it away. Ah, it's just such a fun moment. Here it is, let's quote it. He is not a lord, a child's voice put in. 
He's in the Night's Watch, stupid, from Westeros. A girl edged into the light. Like, who else says he's in the Night's Watch, stupid? Like, who else calls people stupid Yeah, exactly. Very few people. I don't know (laughs) if anyone calls people stupid. I can't remember anyone else doing that. Maybe Marcella does it once really early. No, she doesn't say stupid. She just, she calls, they call Arya smelly or... Or dirty. Yeah, but that's that's not the same thing. Anyway, so yeah, as Joe Buckley points out, it's a great fan favorite moment, really fun coming together of characters. She's supposed to be cat of the canals with very limited knowledge of the Night's Watch, but she knows what she knows and can't resist sharing it and and bringing it up. And it gives us, it helps give us this great moment. And she also shows off how well she's taking to the task of learning all the little things, learning all the people and personalities and just picking up so much information and holding on to it. She's the one who tells Sam where Darian is. She explains the culture and traditions of these bravos and their dueling and exactly what to do and not do and says, well, you're wearing black. Don't touch your sword. It's all these unwritten rules that we referred to at the beginning of the episode describing these themes that Arya has mastered really well and fairly quickly because she's super talented and awesome. Also, by the way, when Arya's Cat of Canals chapter comes, which is her next chapter, right before it is Sam for his next chapter. So they maintain this sort of back-to-back thing, which yeah, makes sense because of Bravos. Of course, Sam won't be in Bravos in his next chapter, but he'll still be thinking about it while he's on the cinnamon wind. So let's talk about Darian for a second. Yeah, it is easy to demonize him because he, he deserves some punches in the face, but... He's not 100% free of some complaint here. He has a legitimate grievance with being a person that probably should never have been sent to the wall. If he's innocent, like he claims. Now, maybe he's lying. Maybe he's just telling stories to be, seem better, to seem like a better person. But if he was sent to the wall on false charges, I sympathize with him wanting to leave but I do not sympathize with how he treats Sam and Gilly and and Eamon, of course. So I think we're allowed to have separate opinions on these things, condemn him for his behavior there, but realize that he's a victim of this system as well. It's, It's two different things here. Also fair to point out, it's maybe not hypocritical, maybe a little hypocritical. Darren's like, oh, you tell me you never slept with Gilly? And he's like, no, I blah, blah, blah. He's going to next chapter. So, <laughs> but again, that doesn't change Darian's laziness and cruelty and, and all that. This one-eyed sex worker that flirts with Sam when he comes, Ina is her name. Interesting story about her. Arya is going to later point out that she's a magi. Like she can do the same thing Maggie the Frog can do, which is taste a drop of blood from your finger and tell your future. We don't know if she's accurate, but it's an interesting thing to note that this is just out there. There's more people like that, maybe, that Maggie the Frog is a rarity in Westeros, but there's other people like that out in the world. I guess it shows this job doesn't pay super well. Maggie the Frog didn't, wasn't rich, and Ina's a, a sex worker. Um, not in bad situation or anything, but she's not exactly... Uh, she's not making a living on her skill. Yeah, she's doing both of these things. Yeah, exactly. It's not enough to make a living, so good point. Good way to put it. And she's going to appear in the Mercy chapter briefly attending the the play because, hey, the play is a big social event that a lot of people are at. Sam thinks back on the sea a bit more, which helps set up this sort of ice and coldness coming in. We have this 
memory of how bad the cold was when they were at sea. This is really quite provocative here, or evocative, rather. <laughs> Not provocative. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Sometimes they came down from the north, cold, grim, with savage winds that cut right through a man. Once it got so cold that Sam had woken to find the whole ship coated in ice, shining as white as a pearl. Along with this, they're cold now without coin for wood, which hmm, running out of wood, running out of things that you can burn for fuel. I think that's going to be happening widespread when winter comes. And this concept is paired with the opposite, meaning the opposite of the extreme cold, the steam of dragons. We get the line, cold preserves, but fire burns in this chapter. And we're getting ice and fire themes directly. And well, that fits into, like I said, all this gives way to the dragons and the dragon dreams, which may be, like I said, a very thematic currying of events in a row here. So here's the, the quote. I dreamed in the black of night, a man asks all the questions he dare not ask by daylight. For me, these past years, only one question has remained. Why would the gods take my eyes and my strength, yet condemn me to linger on so long, frozen and forgotten? What use could they have for an old, done man like me? Amon's fingers trembled, twigs sheathed in spotted skin. I remember, Sam. I still remember. It was not making sense. Remember what? Dragons, Amon whispered. The grief and glory of my house they were. It's fitting then that he thinks so much of his brother Egg, the king who was called Egg on the Unlikely, responsible for Summerhall. Grief and glory right there. That's the grief, Summerhall. And of course, the glory was, is a little more straightforward with taking the seven kingdoms and the immense power that dragons gave them. And with that, it's also fitting that there are multiple references to the hedge knight in this chapter. The quote, big knight his brother used to serve is dunk. And there's this thought of his father, Makar. And my father, he never thought the throne would pass to him, and yet it did. He used to say that was his punishment for the blow that slew his brother. I pray he found the peace and death that he never knew in life. And yeah, he was surprised he inherited the throne because Makar was a fourth son, and that's why Aegon the Unlikely is called the Unlikely because he was also a fourth son. Fourth son of a fourth son becoming king. That is, well, unlikely. So many dreams Eamon has in this one. It's another example where you could just focus on only Eamon's dreams and go for hours and hours and hours off of just this, even without bringing in parallel examples from elsewhere in the other books. It fits with the theme of ongoing theme of physical weakness and powers being associated there, or powers coming out a little more during times of physical weakness and ordeals like that. Jojen, Bran, fevers and dreams are associated a lot from characters like Ned to Jamie. Eamon seems to be dreaming consistently of Egg. Yes, dragons, but also his brothers, but specifically Egg more than the others. That makes sense. They were closest of the brothers. Eamon was never super close with his other two brothers. He loved them, but they were very troubled. Arian was cruel. Daron had the most dreams and a drinking problem. And of course... Eamon, more so than any of them, probably studied and understood and knew what it meant, what they were suffering, and uh, apparently had dreams of his own that he was more able to handle, that didn't maybe affect his day-to-day -day life 
in his mental state. It seems to have somewhat broken Daron, but Eamon was able to live with it. Whereas Arian and Egg were driven to do bizarre things to try to bring dragons back. Arian drank wildfire, Egg did Summerhall, which involved wildfire. And the dragon dreams are, of course, of all the different types of dreams, we see that we try to categorize green dreams, fire dreams from, you know, R'hllor, which isn't the same as a dragon dream. Well, it's all dragon dreams here, as far as we can tell. And well, let's have an example. I see them in my dreams, Sam. I see a red star bleeding in the sky. I still remember red. I see their shadows on the snow, hear the crack of leathern wings, feel their hot breath. My brothers dreamed of dragons too, and the dreams killed them, every one. It's vaguely like what Danny was feeling before the dragons were hatched. She's got a series of different dreams and images in her head, and that one, and this in particular, is familiar to that, uh, some of the similar language, especially the crack of leathern wings and the hot breath. Just the dreams in general is an obvious parallel. The red star bleeding in the sky. So very directly, he's associating the comet with the rebirth of the dragons. He's so very excited to learn more. Danny really could have used his help. He, it would have, you know, it's another sad almost thing. It's like Sam and Arya not realizing all they have in common. Eamon uh, realizing far too late in life that he needed to go to her. I mean, she's been around for a little while, but he's only just now realizing. But Marwyn is going there. I, I suppose he'll have to do, maybe. And Eamon is going to insist in this chapter that Danny have counsel from a maester, or actually maybe it's the next chapter. Either way, he insists. He dies in, before the next chapter, but Sam remembers it all. So either way, it's super important. Eamon says what Marwyn agrees with, and then there's this little line he repeats here and while he's thinking about it. He's talking about bleeding stars and white shadows and dreams and... Doesn't that kind of sound like it's more related to the others? White shadows? I mean, the line was, there are shadows on the snow. That's the closest thing he gets to white shadows. So Sam is kind of transposing what was said a little bit, but that has to be intentional on George's part. It sounds related to the others, or maybe it's a nod to an ice dragon or an undead dragon, which may be coming in our future. And Eamon also says, we tremble on the cusp of hash-remembered prophecies of wonders and terrors that no man now living could hope to comprehend. It's the ultimate example of George R. R. Martin having important lore up interrupted, right? We see this a bunch of times when Sam is looking at a book, John interrupts him, or come to, we've pointed it out when it happens a bunch of times. I think this is that type of thing on steroids, whereas Eamon is just starting to spill all this stuff he knows, and then he just dies. <laughs> it's, instead of an interruption of another subject coming up, it's a permanent interruption. Let's not forget about Gilly here. She's, not, nothing much has changed for her. She's still suffering greatly. Sam is still feeling very guilty about it. He's understanding more now that he's aware of why she's suffering so much. It's, it sits differently with him. His guilt is eating away at him. And of course, he has so many responsibilities. He feels kind of like he's ignoring her because Eamon's health issues are more pressing, but that just serves to increase his guilt because Gilly really needs help and attention and love. And Darian, of course, is just making things worse. And you got to wonder too, like how is this going to play out later? Joe's asking the question, when Sam and John come back together, Sam might have some bitterness over this whole thing, or, or maybe he'll have come to accept it as necessary. But either way, look at this line here. It's very peculiar, the wording. You would weep as well if you had a son and lost him, Sam almost said. He could not blame Gilly for her grief. 
Instead, he blamed Jon Snow and wondered when Jon's heart had turned to stone. Heart had turned to stone? Is that like a little stone heart reference foreshadowing Jon's death? I mean, yeah, she would weep as well when she had a son and lost him. (laughs) (laughs) And if Jon rising and having, you know, being an undead kind of like her, maybe he'll lose some of his humanity like she has. Maybe not quite as vicious and vindictive, but he'll have reason to be vindictive and and fairly vicious with (laughs) the people that killed him. Maybe less so towards, you know, people who murdered his family, but still... Uh, there's a p- potential for a lot of parallel there. And it also fits with what Bran sees with John very early in his chapters, the theme of, and the theme of this chapter of warmth, fleeing in advance of the cold that's oncoming. John has warmth leaving his body slowly as he, you know, is an armored in black and, and rests on his bed of stone and all that. So there's these great parallels happening here, speaking to these really huge overarching themes, these ice and fire, central supernatural themes that we love to get more on. Now, certainly all this impacts how he deals with Eamon as well. So let's wrap that up. Eamon will pass in between chapters. Darian will be left behind and then killed. And then Sam's going to have all of his attention on Gilly with Darian and Sam both out of the picture and and them on a ship. You know, there's just fewer distractions. It's going to be all Sam and Gilly, Cinnamon Wind, until until they get to Old Town. And of course, if you don't recall, the Cinnamon Wind, that is the ship we saw in Karth way back at the end of A Clash of Kings, the one that brings news of Robert's death and then clearly carries news of Danny's dragons to, well, not just Bravos, but other ports. And that gives us a example of how news spreads. You see these trading ships go from place to place. They pick up news and they go to other places and that news spreads with them. Of course, sometimes it's not news that's spreading, it's diseases. And that's going to be relevant too. The ports are going to matter in that regard. Whether that applies to Old Town specifically, we shall see. That is, that's an interesting chapter to analyze because it generates fewer questions because I think a lot of these themes are really under the surface and a lot of them are just impossible to answer. Like, no one knows what to do with all this Aemon Dragon stuff other than, you know, we can break it down a number of different ways, but it's still very much kept a mystery by George. He's presented it to us in a number of different ways, but he hasn't given us the, the full truth of it or where it's all headed. We just have a lot of tantalizing ideas on that. But this chapter, probably more than any other in the entire book with maybe the exception of Sam's final chapter when Marwyn is just dishing all this stuff about prophecy. That might be the only other time we get this close to these core, core uh, examples of the ice and fire themes. So pay close attention because there might be more that we missed in future chapters. And with that, we're done for the day. Thanks to Marty Davidson for the last minute super chat saying thanks Aziz and Ash just for being you. Well, thanks for being you, Marty, and being a supporter. Last week, we covered 150 minutes and 15 seconds. This week, a lot more, 185 minutes, 35 seconds. We have gone through... Wait a minute. I don't think I updated this. That's last week's notes. (laughs) We are past the halfway point. This says 48%, but I'm pretty sure I said that last week. So ignore me there. We are past the halfway point. I think we're around the 54, 55% position. So we would be around the 1100-ish mark minutes. Either way, 
Always check the video length and compare it to the podcast version. It if should you be are very curious. stark today. This yeah, time, that's true. Because of all the you know errors. Yeah, we had extra technical problems today, so the the video version. We'll probably be able to edit some of that out. Live streams are harder to edit, but we can't edit out big gaps. So we'll probably do a little of that. Make sure to check out our website. As we've been trying to remind you all lately, we've got a new feature over there at historyofwestros.com. Not only does it contain all the different links to the ways to support us, not only does it contain a great list of all of our existing Patreon supporters and a lot of the artists we've worked with, it's a huge comprehensive list there, but it contains the new feature of Valar Reredis episodes listed one by one with timestamps for each chapter portion. You can click on it and it takes you exactly to that chapter you can sort by which book. And it'll allow you to see what all the fun names are in one spot. That's true. All of our funky names that we invent to make the chapters a little bit more descriptive and distinct. With that in mind, let's announce what we've got next week. Jamie 3, the gang meets Golden Hand the Just, a.k.a. Heron Hall. Third time's not the charm. Cersei 6, the Queen of Bones a.k.a. the one with the Faith Militant Reborn. And the Reaver, Conquest of the Shields, a.k.a. Euron's Shady Dreams. That's right, only three chapters next week. This will be the only three-chapter week we have. The rest of the way will all be fours. But these three chapters are particularly long. All three of them are above average length. One of them well above average, so... Well, we had to have one three-chapter week. They don't equally divide by four the rest of the way. And, well, might as well do it with the longest batch of three in a row. Hey, notice how we still have a Jamie and a Cersei, even with it's only three chapters. Uh, Jamie's only third chapter, but Jamie's got seven or eight chapters in the book. He's like 25% of the remaining book is Jamie. And, of course, that's roughly the same for Cersei, too, because she's just omnipresent. But, hey, thanks again, everybody. We mentioned some of our off uh, other, other episodes that are related to this. House Royce comes up a bit. We talked about House Royce, Jan Royce. There's a lot more history there with them. We did an episode on that. Our Summer Hall episodes come up again, as they often do. War of Nine Penny Kings, we did two episodes on that. This year, there's a lot more quoting of Septon Maribald and of perhaps understanding some of the other things that he talks about. But there's a lot of other sources on the Nine Penny Kings as, as well. That's what's guest Stephen Atwell. Dreams and Dreamers is an important one. We delve a lot into different styles of dreams. It's There's a lot of dreams that we didn't cover in that one because it's really too big for one episode, but we talked about a lot of non-magical dreams in that one, and some that might be. <laughs> and that touches on Joanna Lannister a bit too, which we also have an episode on Joanna Lannister because that's going to be coming up in Jamie's chapters as well. I think there's one more I meant to mention, or two more, really, but I forget what they are. It doesn't matter. We'll have other opportunities to uh, remind you of what our other episodes are. And heck, most of you all already know anyway. It's a it's a good problem for us to have. We have a deep catalog. We've been around a while. It's, it's sometimes people don't even know of all the episodes we've done because we've been doing them for seven years or so. And we appreciate those of, of, of y'all who have been with us since the beginning and those of y'all who have just joined us we appreciate your support. We appreciate your comments. We appreciate your engagement. We appreciate you listening. Thanks extra special to Ashea for dealing with things out of her control today. Technology is just going to technology sometimes. And well, we, we just got to manage the best we can. And I got to say, hey, she seems to handle pretty well this time. There was some pro pretty serious issues, but we got, got through it pretty quickly there. Got right back on track. Thanks also to Joe and Nina for their invaluable contributions to every episode. 
thanks to our mods. The History of Westeros mods on Facebook are just such a great squad. They do such a good job of posting the episodes every week, keeping on top of it, making sure our Facebook group is well-moderated, making sure it's a pleasant place to discuss the Song of Ice and Fire and to have fun and to not worry about too much of what else is happening in the world. Same goes for our other spots. They don't all have moderators like our cool Facebook group does, but they're well-moderated in spite of that. Flick doesn't really need moderation. <laughs> Great place to have discussions. Discord is about a lot of other things at once, not just about Game of Thrones, Song of Ice and Fire, but it's a great place to be. Thanks to Michael Klarfeld, aka Claradox.de. That's his website. Different background here. This is still his art, though. Yes, Thanks. and the background will look better soon in the yep. next week or two. Unfortunately, it didn't come out the way we wanted, but we, we got different versions made. We just haven't gotten them yet. Yeah, we have a couple coming. So, yeah, FedEx was nice enough to eat the cost of the remainder, so we'll have canvas versions, and if those aren't good enough, we'll have cloth versions. Yeah, so we're working on it. <laughs> we want to pretty up our background with Westeros. <laughs> There's nothing better to put behind us. Even better, Westeros with pictures of our friends, though, right? Yeah, it's it's great. Uh, you can see it, it well, probably unless you get real close. But John Hagee, Prince of Sunsphere, for example, is uh, right there here. Is he's uh, a lot of them aren't visible, really. But yeah, regardless, but they're there. Go to we our Facebook it. group for more details on on who's who's who and some of these photos. It's really fun, and maybe one day. You can appear on a map. The, the oh, it's a great mention of that. Um, if you look on Facebook for Model Earth, uh, that's a Facebook group that Michael created just so that uh, people can submit their faces for future projects. Yeah, you never know which character you might be perfect as. Thanks also to Kevin McLeod for the Valor Reads music. Thanks to Joey Townsend and Jesse Kowal for our regular History Restos music. Thanks to our Benjineer for making our sound quality as good as it could be. Thanks again to our patrons for their wonderful financial support, without which none of this would be possible. We could possibly spend all this time on Westeros doing live streams every week, writing 40-page documents every week without making money from it. It just would not be possible. You get what you pay for, and we're so blessed and appreciative of being the ones to get to deliver that to you, amongst other creators. We're not the only ones, certainly. They're grateful too, I'm sure. Well, since we're done, it's a time for our weekly reminder to go check out Here Be Dragons. They're just now getting started over there. I don't recall the topic today. Do you know? Uh, Lord of the Rings. Oh, very cool. Lots of crossover, lots of inspiration. George R. R. Martin calls it his favorite series of all time. He says he reads it every year, just about. So <laughs> when you catch references to Lord of the Rings in A Song of Ice and Fire, you are probably not imagining it. They are real. They are common. And they are spectacular. <laughs> You got me for one. Been once. watching too much Seinfeld <laughs> lately. Maybe I'll start doing yeah, some Seinfeld titles. I don't know about too much. Yeah, there really isn't anything as too much. So much thing. There isn't such a thing as too much Seinfeld. Anyway, yeah, check out Steven and Here Be Dragons, their Lord of the Rings chat. That should be fun. I'm sure they're going to do a good job with that. And we'll see you next week for more Valar Rereads. <laughs>